Morning and welcome to Wanda's Ticks, a Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity Ashu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And today we have a special broadcast to share with audiences uh, a film that's opening this Friday in the Bay Area. Sixteen bars, one jail, one recording studio. And the director is actually going to be at the screening in San Francisco, um, uh, Sam Bathrick. He's going to be at the Four Star, uh, which is having a screening. But it's also screening at the Smith uh, Raphael Film Center in San Rafael. And for both screenings, the film is going to be at both locations from Friday the 7th through um, February 13th. And this film... Wow, it is really, really marvelous, and and we're so happy that we're going to have the director um, join us this morning, as well as uh, one of the uh, I don't know speech uh, <laughs> of the uh, the group uh, Arrested Development. Oh, who might be on the air right now? Let's see. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome to Wanda's Picks. Good, Good morning. This is Speech. Oh wow! I just just called your name, and here you are. <laughs> yeah, How I was you doing? just. Um, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Wow, the film, uh, sixteen bars. Uh, it is it is simply riveting. Oh my goodness! You know those wow. men; they Thank just you. stay with you. Oh man, and you do too. I when I was reading your bio, it's like wow, you spent the night in in the jail too. I didn't. I didn't see yeah. that part in the film. Yeah, we actually left that out because we wanted to keep the focus on the men and not make it mm. be about some celebrity coming in. It, it needed to be about the men, so that's that's why we decided to not include that into the film. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, the the short synopsis says that the four inmates at the City Jail in Richmond, Virginia, are part of a unique rehabilitation effort that involves writing and recording original music. The film follows their personal and artistic development as they produce an album with uh, the Grammy-winning recording artist yourself, 
uh, Speech Thomas from the iconic activist hip-hop group Arrested Development. And, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk about sort of what attracted you to this particular work, um, um, because one thing that you say in the film is that you believe in redemption. Yeah, definitely. I saw a um, program on CNN by Lisa Ling and mm-hmm. called This Is Life. And in that program, she was filming a daddy-daughter's dance in this exact same jail. And me oh. and my manager saw, we happened to see the program and uh, at the same time, and we called each other and was like, yo, this is, this is really moving to me what this sheriff of this jail is allowing for these inmates to do and the humanity of it, allowing them to have their daughters there and to have a dance and to have a DJ and, and all of this, it just, it felt way more than what I tend to, to hear about and see in programs throughout the nation. So we decided to reach out to them to see if I could be of service, you know, and see if there was something mm-hmm. that I could do musically with the inmates in this particular jail. And um, that's, that started a two-year conversation back and forth and um, mm-hmm. before we would ever actually get there. Oh, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, wow, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, sort of the idea of that this is in Richmond, Virginia, and, you know, we think about, you know, that, that early first colony, right? And um, yeah. in Richmond, in, you know, in Virginia, and Richmond is the capital, I believe. Is Richmond the capital of Virginia? That's a good question. I don't know. Well, I just I just know it. <laughs> I mean, I was in you know, um, I was in Fort Monroe, you know, at the National Memorial uh, at, at the National Monument last August, and it was my first time in Virginia, and and I got a chance to go to Hampton um, University, you know, where that that big tree, the Freedom Tree, is, you know, where they read the Emancipation, you know, Proclamation at you know the end of uh, enslavement for our people. And it just sort of hearing the stories of our people in Virginia, I mean, they were like real resolute and believe in freedom, right? And and then, you know, they have this story, you know, and, and this is the jail. This is where people are processed. And, and you know, and to see and to hear these stories and to see how some people are like, you know, trapped by chemicals, you know, because of the self-medication, you know, of trying to, like, deal with that trauma. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about your process, you know, and, you know, we see you in the studio and we see, you know, how much, you know, the the, the synergy between you and the men, and particularly, you know, the young the young man, you know, who's 21. My goodness, he is a youngster, um, Anthony. And, and we're just really rooting for folks, right? And... Um, yeah. but, but you know, but it's not a happily ever after story necessarily. It's but it, it is real. Not you know, in you all think ways. About crime and punishment, not crime and rehabilitation. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wanted to say, you know, this movie is a microcosm. It goes in really deep. We focus on four mm-hmm. men, but when you pull out, it's a macro issue of trauma from historical abuses that are unprecedented. I mean. When you look at, for instance, some women who were trapped in a house, I think it was in Ohio, and they were trapped in a house by a predator for for 15 years. And everyone in the nation, when those women were rescued, everyone in the nation thoroughly understood that they would be uh, the victims of some deep trauma that would take years to overcome. And my point is 
is our nation hasn't thought deeply about the trauma that 400 years of torture and of, of deep, deep oppression and trauma, what kind of impact that has generationally and mm-hmm. for this particular people, which is our people. So I think right. that this movie just sheds a light on it, even though it's a microcosm of four men. And yes, going into the studio was an amazing experience because you start to hear the one-on-one stories that are going on behind the scenes of the people that we sort of see as statistics in jail. These are real men with real families and real situations that they're striving to overcome. And so it's, it's, you know, I was really blessed to be able to be with these particular four men. If we would have went into this jail two weeks later, a month later, we would have had no choice but to deal with numerous other men. So I love about what I love about this film is it gives you as a viewer a chance to understand the depth of this. And at the same time, we were blessed to be able to get to know four amazing men that really represent millions of men that are presently locked away. And many of them for nonviolent crimes and some of them even innocent. So it's a, it's an issue that we've got to tackle as this nation is striving to progress and move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of clips, actually. Um, I have one uh, of Garland, and and I have another one of, of Teddy Kane. Um, and I was wondering, um, Dr. Garland Carr, could I could I play uh, one of them, and we could talk a little bit more? Please, yeah. Okay. Um, which one, Garland's first or or Teddy's first? I would say Garland first. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ain't no end to the lengths I go. Mm-hmm. 
Why don't we talk a little bit about the scene where where that um, particular song is shared? Yeah, so Garland is one of the um, men in this film. He's uh, an amazing singer, amazing songwriter. He wrote that song, obviously being inspired by numerous things, from gospels to slave songs from the early days of this country. And so just really... Um, powerful piece. What I love about that piece is that Garland wanted to do that with the men so that all, so that all of them could in, in their own way share their experience of pain and regret for the things that they've done and their passion for reform and to, to redeem themselves and, and to be better people. And I think that's a part that America doesn't really have a great conversation about, meaning we you know, in politics, people talk a lot about punishment, making sure people punish, are punished for their crime, making sure people are locked away. That's a very um, popular sort of thought in American uh, politics. And yet the idea of reform and people repenting, people getting out and doing and being great citizens is not part of the conversation a lot of times. And so I think that song to me reminds me of the point of incarceration what what is actually the point of it and these men were very much on that path mhm right yeah yeah and um and and realistic about the the outcomes you know for instance um you know Garland didn't know you know he, he had to go to court and see what was going to happen you know whether or not exactly. you know, he was going to get you know go to a prison and have serve a really long sentence or was he going to get another chance to to do something different and um you know you couldn't predict but whatever was going to be the outcome you know he was going to accept it graciously and and make the best of it and and so so exactly. this film is also we're just sort of like waiting like okay what's going to happen <laughs> exactly i think a lot of people who hear about this film think it's just me the entire time in a jail working mm. on music. It's not. We actually followed these men for about a year and a half. So it's a time capsule and, as I said earlier, a microcosm of the macro problem that's going on. But we followed these men out of the jail, their family lives, their you know girlfriends and things like this, their children. So there's a whole full story that revolves around each man and woman that's in jail and in prison, and this movie goes into that. 
So I look at 13 um, as an incredible film documentary that looks at the macro problem and the historical problem of um, the huge incarceration rates, which are number one incarcerate, incarceration rates across the planet. So that looks at the macro, and then this one goes in with a fine, you know, a fine lens and looks at all of the micro problems that are going on underneath it all. And so that's what I like about this film. I feel like it's an it's an addition to the conversations that have already been had about the prison uh, system and the reform that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It, it's interesting. You you said thirteen, and I was kind of like, whoa, what a what an interesting slip of the tongue, right? Thirteen. <laughs> Right. Of 16. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 13th Amendment haunting us. Um, yeah, yeah, and in, only in this case, um, it's not just black men locked up. Um, you know, there there are men like you know Garland is not a person of African descent, and um, and you know he uh, um, he's a veteran uh, in in this bio. He's a veteran of the. Virginia prison system. A lot of these men are veterans because, you know, they they're they're suffering from from addiction, and and that really, gosh, that is such a powerful theme in this film that, you know, if people are you know, you know, addicted to a substance, you know, whether it's um, alcohol or something else like crack cocaine, um, or even nicotine. But the others, you know, the crack and the alcohol, you know, they they end up in these spaces, and and there's really no way to get well in a prison, right? That's what we see. This is not a place of wellness. In most instances, there is not. Uh, It is not. And, you know, it's interesting because the drug addiction piece, which is a huge part of crime, period, Mm -hmm. throughout the nation, Mm -hmm. and we see the disparities when people address drug addiction. In the 80s, it was crack. It was ravishing black neighborhoods throughout our country. And the response to it was harsher and harsher penalties, prison time, and so on and so forth. Now we have the opioid crisis. It is ravishing our country once again. But it happens to be with people primarily of white um, backgrounds and, and nationality. And the response tends to be different. Now it's a health issue, it's a health crisis, and people need treatment. And so that that disparity is very blaring, and it reminds you of something that Garland said in this film. Garland is a white brother who is locked up and had been locked up numerous times in his life for for, um, numerous crimes. And so he said that, look, I don't have bad parenting. I didn't come from a bad neighborhood. These were my decisions. These were things that he made mistakes like all of us do. We all make various mistakes in our lives. And he made some mistakes early on, and he got caught up into a, not only a system but a, a, an addiction. And then I look at some of the other men, and most of them, on the other hand, also made mistakes in their lives. But they had, in addition to that, the historical trauma that I was referring to just a moment ago. And that's not to make excuses, but that's the truth. And when you're trying to build a puzzle as to what to do to solve something, before you could do that, you have to break apart that puzzle to understand what is causing it. And that's why we as a nation have to have more and more conversations about redeeming what has happened um, over the hundreds of years that, that we can't ignore. And it's a blaring elephant that always shows itself in the room 
when numerous problems happen in our country. It just happened again when Jay-Z and Beyonce sat down for the um, the, the um, allegiance, Pledge of Allegiance uh, during the Super Bowl. Well, the reason was for police brutality. And yet that is just another example of this elephant rearing itself in the middle of American reality. And so we've got to start dealing with what has actually happened and start to come up with real, real solutions that deal with it from the root. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And and so, you know, they have this program, you know, where, I mean, it was all voluntary, you know, the men, um, you know, chose to participate, you know, in, in this opportunity, you know, with you to be able to, to you know, do this recording. And and so we look at the transformative power of of art and being able to tell one story. And you know we we look at you know Anthony, you know he's 21 years old and he's already a father of two, and he's the youngest inmate on the cell block. You know, but all these men are men are struggling, particularly the the men of African descent are struggling with mental health issues like Anthony, you know, um, like Teddy. And um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's serious. Oh my goodness. Um, and, 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 and one of the things. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, no. Mm-mm. Well, I was going to say one of the things you notice in this film is the historical and family traumas. So there is mm-hmm. dysfunction that has happened. Um, part of it as a result of the historical things that I've been talking about, and part of it just dysfunction. And so. Um, you see that play out as well. So there's a few different demons that are sort of coming in. And, you know, Teddy said something powerful, and basically he was saying in the film, it's a Bible verse, where Jesus talks about um, demons that leave a man. And if you don't fill yourself up with something um, really, really powerful, what happens is the demons leave you, and then it comes back. But not only comes back, but it brings more demons with it. And that's what you see lived out in real life when you see dysfunctions in families and various pathologies that are passed down from generation to generation. You've got to learn not only to stop those pathologies, but fill it up with the correct behaviors, the correct ways of thinking. So functionality has to replace um, dysfunctionality. And that's, that's one of the things that you see in this, in this film so blaringly. It's very, very powerful and, and, and just moving. I mean, people... At the end of this film, many of them, there's not a dry eye. And mm-hmm. it's just a very great opportunity to peer into a world that you probably, most viewers don't probably understand a lot about. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I'm really sure. Are Are you driving? I am, yeah. I, oh, okay. <laughs> I hear traffic. Um, okay. Yeah, I was... Um, just thinking, you know, as you were talking about about the legacy, you know, that a lot of these, you know, at one point children inherit, like Teddy when he's a little boy, and and he gets um, beat up, and what his father tells him, and then you know he's, you know, his, he's 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 sharing two households, his mother's household and his father's household, and the mother doesn't know what's happening to her child in the father's household. I'm like, oh, you know, and. And we, we think about, you know, sort of this whole thing around custody and how when the court sort of gets in the family, like becomes a part of a family, 
it's not always a good thing, you know, sort of the way that the court sort of steps in but doesn't really know what it's stepping into. And then, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's – and then then sort of rights. Yeah, it's really – it's it's really tragic, and and these like you say these are our people. These are and Teddy, as you just said, you know, saw a man get his head blown off when he was a young child, and literally blood splattered on his face, and this is what he explains in the film. And his you know he called his his father and was like, Dad, this is what happened, and his father was like, Listen, you're in the hood, you can either be a wolf. Or a sheep. If you want to be a sheep, you go and live with your mother. If you want to be a wolf, lick the blood off your face and come home with me. And that's the response that the father said to a young boy. Mm-hmm. And so you see that trauma that most people would have to get treatment for. I mean, even people that go off to war, some of them will never see anything like that. And others who obviously have, many of them will have to get treatment and so on and so forth. This is this is some of the realities that we're faced with in our country. And then not to mention even Anthony, who spoke about his mother and the domestic abuse, abuse that was happening mm-hmm. right in his own household. And him trying to understand what is right and wrong in life was totally skewed when he saw his mother, as he would explain in the film, get the brakes beat off of her. And the response of the mother, when, the, when he called the police to try to stop this abuse, the response of the mother, which we know is all too common, was to lie and say, no, nothing happened, officer. You know, I just fell down the stairs or something like that. And he, as a young boy, had to try to register, well, what exactly is happening? There's something more than meets the eye here that I don't understand. And his whole perspective of what was right and wrong in life was thoroughly messed up. And then even you have Anthony, um, Devante, I'm sorry, who you can see his family in the film, who his mother was a kingpin. She was one of the biggest drug dealers in the city. His family was deeply addicted. If we go into his house and you can see the realities that he has to deal with on a daily basis. So, you know, it's just, um, it's very sobering, but it also, for me at least, I hope it's a tool to help people to roll up their sleeves and say, listen, this is correctable and this is preventable. Um, I say in one of my songs, United Minds, that an ounce of prevention beats a pound of cure. This is preventable for our future generations, but we have to start dealing with it and dealing with it realistically. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, do we want to... Um play the uh the Teddy Kane um inspired uh piece and then talk Definitely. a little bit more. Okay. I've been coming back and forth to jail since I was ten years old, man. I made a career out of that. Now I realize I got a gift to make music. So it kinda of fuels me. That maybe somebody may hear the song and it may inspire them to at least look at life different. I wrote this to inspire. I pray that it do. I wrote this to inspire. If you're tired of the lying and the bias and the violence, 
Gotta stand on top of that giant Like King David and Goliath For the fellas that can't get higher Ever since Obama left the White House Seems like the White House done got wider In the air will be whole our lighters For the convicts locked on Rikers And the lifers And that moment is hooked on cracks So the nerd kid diapers To the young black man indicted Could've been a draft pick for the Vikings Got pulled over, he ain't got a license Caught with some crack in the scale and the rifle Just cause I'm black in my skin, I like you When I walk past, don't jump like I'ma bite you Just trying to open up the door for you Cause I got manners, I'm a man, understand this fight We ain't never asked you to come to this country Took us from my own land, called us honkers Changed our language, whipped us bloody Just like scars, can't fix with no money Time never wasted, mind elevated Raising the 80s, could've went crazy But God show favor, your soul, they can save it Baby with a baby, you can still make it Child support with EBT Raise their kids on VEG Stack their paychecks week to week Now ain't no gunshots when they sleeping I know God by choice beautiful part of the film you know when we're, I guess we're at are we at your studio um, with the uh, yeah, the children studio. Yeah. yeah yeah that was um, that part always gets me when I, whenever I watch the film and obviously I've seen it a million times and it's like it still gets <laughs> me whenever I watch it you know when you when you take a journey and watch these men on this film it's such a powerful film I definitely want everyone to go check it out 16 bars, the film.com definitely shows where it's at and where you can see it. But when you take that journey through this film and you end in this place where you see these incredible, bright, you know, stars in their eyes, kids singing this song about 
their lives and being inspired. And it just is so moving. And I don't know, it's just, it's just such a special song. I really love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really, it is really, really beautiful. Um, that particular moment, it sort of gives you hope. Because uh, we have all these children, these these beautiful, and then you know, and then in in the studio, you know, at the jail, um, you know, Teddy, um, it's so so cool. Like you and Teddy are are thinking the same thing at the same time. <laughs> it's like exactly, yeah. which is totally divine. <laughs> mhm, mhm. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. And that happened um, numerous times throughout this film. Just very divine mm-hmm. moments that just. Mm-hmm. Let you know God was watching over the whole process, and and mm-hmm. it was it was very very moving. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um. Any other divine moments that come to mind? Well, for me personally, a lot of this was. I mean, just the fact that we were able to get into this prison, and then when mm-hmm. we were able to, two years after starting this conversation with them, um, I'm sorry, jail. When we were able to get into that jail. The sheriff, C.T. Woody, was amazing. He was the most instrumental part of us getting in there. He got voted out right after we finished filming. And so what? you talk about divine, huh? divine will. He was voted out by the people of Virginia, of Richmond, for hmm. someone that didn't have that same passion for this music program. So hmm. you just think about how windows open and how God wants us to utilize that window while it's open because – you know, he may allow it to be shut again and open other windows in the future. But this window was open for a very small amount of time. We were inspired to, I say we, me and my manager, were inspired to call. We did. Mm-hmm. We tried to make some things happen. We did. And that window was closed soon after we finished filming. If we would have, if the election would have happened in the middle of our filming, we possibly could not have made the movie. Mm. Wow. So yeah, there's yeah, been a lot that, of divine inspiration. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, sort of in the, you know, having that thought, acting on it and being in that particular window, you know, we see it in a lot of times in science fiction. The window's open like a portal and then it closes. Exactly. You, That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Mm, yep. Mm-hmm. Like a portal. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking um you know about about you know your band arrested development and um and just the whole idea of cuz you know this all starts for a lot of these men that we meet as children so there's an arrested development literally right and and so that yeah. you would be the one to step into this portal you know with the kind of of um history and understanding of history that you carry with you you know artistically and you know, and through your your work, um, you think about that as another, you know, like <laughs> a divine intervention that I you heard agree. it, right? Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. And that's the reason we even named our group that is because of what we saw, which was numerous cases of arrested development. And we wanted to mm-hmm. put that name up as a chalkboard of what we wanted to fight against. So, yeah, that's you see that you see all the different things that are sort of tying together. It's amazing. Mhm. Yeah. And then I was thinking. I remember when, um, when I saw the film Crime After Crime, 
and and I saw that um, that you know that you all you know Arrested Development had once again, <laughs> um, you know this time at a women's prison in California, the California Women's Facility, where um, uh, Deborah Peekler, um, you know who is now an ancestor, you may so rest in peace, um, had a uh, a gospel choir and and you all you know um, you were there and I don't know exactly sort of the the in the workings of it, but you're in the film. Um, crime after crime, yes. and so this seems to be um, kind of something that, um, if if at all possible, you know, you can, you know, intervene. Um, you show up. Exactly, and that's you know, I have a very simple life philosophy, and that is do what you can with what you have with the people around you, and so whenever the opportunity arises, then I do what I can. And to me, it keeps it simple. It doesn't make it feel like you got to be the savior of the whole world. None of us will be the savior of the whole world. There's already someone that does that job. The point of us is to do what we can with what we have with the people that are around us at the time. And that keeps it simple. So I, that's personally what I strive to live by. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And and there is there is a soundtrack that's available or going to be available, right? It's available now, yes. It's on all oh, it streaming services, and it's 16 bars, and um, the soundtrack, and um, the songs that, you, you know, your, your your listeners and viewers maybe heard, you know, it's all on the streaming services right now, and we even have vinyl that you can get on our website, which is 16barsthefilm.com, and also my website, brotherspeech.com, you can get all of the, all of the above. Cool, cool. Wow, yeah. Um, any any closing thoughts? I want to let our audience know again, um, you know, that we're speaking um, to Speech uh, Thomas, who was a facilitator, you know, in this, this um, project at the uh, Richmond um, County Jail um, and uh, in the film, 16 Bars, One Jail, One Recording Studio, directed by Sam Bathrick, who is going to be in San Francisco this Friday. Uh, February 7th um, at the Four Star, and uh, the film is going to be running the 7th through the 13th, and it'll also be at the uh, Smith Rafael in San Rafael, same same time, the 7th through the 13th. Maybe he might be traveling across the Richmond Bridge over to that particular um, facility, uh, facility, um, facility, I'm thinking prisons, um, theater as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, no, I want to give a shout-out to the men in the film and, all you know, mm-hmm. Devontae, Anthony, Garland, Teddy, and, of course, to Sam, who did an incredible job directing, and I, I give him a huge shout-out and all of his team. And, um, and of course, you know, the truth of the matter is is that these men are, like I said, a, a microcosm of what's going on in our nation. The election season is coming up. I think people can look into the different candidates that they believe will best do the job to get some, some change started. And that, that's what we're really needing. And um, mm-hmm. so I think it's a great time for people to feel empowered too, to be able to change some things. Right. Right. Yeah. And are any, are there any after the film moments um, that you can share um, about some of the men that, you know, um, you know, once the film was over, you know, it is what yeah, it is. Yeah, but definitely. Definitely. I mean, I, I want to say that for people that haven't seen the film, I don't want to give too much away, but this is obviously 
a time capsule of a certain amount of time. So we filmed for a year and a half, and their lives are continuing to move forward. So there's numerous things that have happened. I'll share a couple great things that have happened because of the film. Number one, we had to work out all the red tape in order to do this, but we were able to pay um, the men in this film for their art. Their art, And so they got money to, to be part of this project in the long run because of the, the record deal that, that happened because of this. And mm-hmm. Garland, who you'll see his girlfriend in the film, was able to buy a ring with the advance money that he got, and they were able to get married, which is an amazing thing we're so proud of <laughs> about this film. Mm. And then yeah. also um, Teddy, who was actually at the San Rafael debut screening of this film. Uh, we actually mm. brought him there. He got out of jail. He was there with us. And standing ovation for him. And at mm. that exact um, filming or screening, he was homeless at the time. And people poured so much love into him where he got a $40,000 opportunity to be a part of a, you know, rehabilitation program. And so he's mm. doing much better right now. He's in Atlanta, with, which is where I'm at. And oh. uh, so just some amazing, amazing things have happened because of the mm. film and because of people's emotions about these men having met mm-hmm. them on the film people have just really reached out on my website. You can go to brotherspeech.com. There's a way for you to donate time or money. If you live in the Richmond, Virginia area, you could donate time to the real house, which is where a lot of these men, once they get out of jail, they're able to transition back into life by going here. You could donate Mm -hmm. money to that, or you could just spend some time there and just volunteer for those that are listening from that area. So yeah, there's a lot of things that have happened since the film. But those are just two that I could share. Oh, that's great. So the the real house that's where um where Anthony goes, is that that place? That's the place where he was, exactly. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, it seemed like a really I like the energy just from the film uh, of that place. It seemed real peaceful it is. and it's very very yeah. effective. Very effective. Mhm. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and and I hope this isn't the last conversation we have. Um, but thank you so much for your time. And and I have one more song um, from Teddy's. Uh, uh, it's the lost lost one that I can play um, yeah. as as we conclude. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. You take good care. You too. Peace. Peace and blessings. Teddy got out of jail before we started filming when I heard his demo I asked if he could come back so that I could record with him White justice in the black road And I pray the Lord have mercy on my black soul And I'm so tired of getting back dough And I'd be rich if I had a dollar for every door that got closed See a near broadcast the footage Unknown black man in his early 20s Filled up with bullets And I don't know another way to put it But that's messed up a cover up my head with Trayvon Hood. 
From Charlotte to Tulsa to Cleveland, they can't justify how we died for no reason. Just guilty for speeding, they pull us over next minute, you bleeding. No, don't talk about freedom, just look how they did the king, they kill all our leaders. Lock a dog in the cage and mistreat him. Then what you think will happen once you release him? Yeah, how much more a human being? And this can't be true what I'm seeing. But it is, and it is what it is. And they miseducating our kids. It's time that we face all our fears and they waste all our tears. And boycott the malt liquor bills. You won't sell that malt liquor here. Old English was a slave ship. We getting minimized, dying of genocide in the same ship. Instead of putting money in the school system, they take money and build a new prison. And guess who going in it? Prison industrial complex. A one-way ticket because of my complexion. And by any means, I'm going to protect what y'all threaten. That's why we ride with pistols up under them armrests. Because we civilly unwested and because I'm black I might get arrested. We lost one. For the lost one, for the lost one. When the police is gunned down that unknown black man, we lost one, we lost one. And he ain't had no gun, just his phone in his hand. We lost one, we lost one. For the mamas and dads that's on their knees praying. For the lost one, for the lost one. They voice can't be heard, so that's why I'ma stand. For the lost one, for the lost one, for the lost one. That's why we gon' stand for the lost one. Wow. Ah, that was Teddy. Um, And uh, this is the film, 16 Bars, One Jail, One Recording Studio. And we were so excited and so happy to speak to Speech, uh, uh, two-time Grammy winner, uh, widely considered one of the godfathers of conscious hip-hop, his band Arrested Developments, 1993 debut album, Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life of went quadruple platinum and was and achieved what few thought was possible at the time, establishing an Afrocentric alternative to gangster rap that was commercially viable. Twenty five years later, Speech continues to tour the world with his band and seek out opportunities to use music to address issues of social and racial justice. In two thousand seventeen he set out on a journey to the Richmond City Jail where he conducted music workshops with inmates, and even spent the night inside the jail. His goal was to shed light on the complex issues in our criminal justice system by bringing the voices and stories of incarcerated people to a larger audience. And, uh, yeah, what a wonderful conversation. And uh, since we have a little bit more time left on this particular show, I was going to um, to play the um, Dr. King special which uh, starts off with another interview with uh, Dr. Daniel Buford um, and then um, shifts into a conversation with um, 
Zach Norris um, after we talk to um, our sister uh, Chloe uh, Hilliard. And we end with a conversation with uh, civil rights veteran uh, Miss <clears throat> uh, Mildred uh, Pitts uh, uh, Walter. Um, something in side so strong. I love that song. I have to play that for you all. <laughs> I don't have it in the studio right now, but it became my theme song after speaking to her and reading her wonderful book. So, But I wanted to play this interview again, this, this show again, because um, Zach Norris's um, uh, book release is tonight. Um, yes, Tuesday. Um February 4th, the day is here. Yeah, we talked about it on the 5th, on the 15th, and that day has arrived. And I want to give you those details um, because uh, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be simply wonderful. We, and we really congratulate him, you know, for um, his 20 years of experience uh, as a thought leader in criminal justice and community empowerment. And he is also the Ella Baker Center Executive Director. Um, his book, We Keep Us Safe, um, launch tonight, um, and the book looks at a vision for how the United States can achieve safety and security for everyone, especially those most vulnerable members of society. And, and we meet many of those uh, people. Actually, um, uh, yeah, we meet those people in in the film uh, "16 Bars, One Jail, One Recording Studio," which again is opening on. Friday, February 7th, uh, it's going to be um, at the Red Star in San Francisco and at the Raphael in San Rafael. And, um, yeah, so um, for the We Keep Us Safe launch tonight, it's from 6 to 8.15, and it begins with the reception at 6, followed by the program at 6.30 and the book signing at 7.35. And the location is at the Restore Oakland. Restore Oakland is 1419 34th Avenue in Oakland. And um, let's see, featured uh, tonight, uh, it's going to be Zach Norris, of course, uh, Ella Baker Center Executive Director, Venus Jones, who is an actress and a poet and an author, Latifah Simon, who is the president of the Akanandi Akanandi Foundation, Davey D, host of Hard Knock Radio on KPFA, Devon Brogan, founder and CEO of Advanced Peace, and uh, Marlena Henderson, criminal justice and mental health reform advocate. So all of that is happening this evening, so you don't want to miss it. And, uh, yeah, so just want to let you all know so you don't miss this opportunity. Uh, And then next week on the 12th, um, Zach is going to be in conversation with Fred Blackwell, uh, CEO of San Francisco Foundation, and they're going to be in conversation at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. So, yeah, so that should be nice, too. Yeah. Um, so where are we? <laughs> Let me play that show for you. All righty. Here we go. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. We are really, really excited to um, be able to broadcast on the birthday of the man of peace and action, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And we have in the studio, I think we could call 
we call you an expert, couldn't we? Um, <laughs> um, you can Pastor call me Reverend. You can call me many things that many people have, including late for dinner. But Reverend Buford's okay. Daniel's all right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining us um, uh, for our part two of a conversation that you know we might have a part three and a part four. You never know. There's so much going on that. Hey, time um, is filled with swift well, transition. Somebody shot through my window last week. We'll talk about that because you know I, I want to speak quick. I want to speak quickly today. So you go ahead. What you got to do? And I'll, I'll I'll get into that <laughs> later. <laughs> well, you know, you sent me a little little book about yourself. I'm like, oh my goodness. I was just like, this is a really extensive. You you mentioned well when you get to be 66, you know, you have a lot. You you know if you've been working and doing things, but um you 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 said uh, in sort of um uh, just a preamble uh, to to the uh, to the the information about yourself that uh, you have a deep history with Dr. King and you went into the mm-hmm. ministry six years after he was assassinated and you also write that you patterned your life as a minister and a prophet after both he and Malcolm X. Uh, that That's they correct. were both your main role models for being a prophetic justice minister before you met Dr. J. Alfred Smith Sr., who pastored Allen Temple Baptist Church at the time that um, that you became uh, active in that particular ministry. And mm-hmm. uh, you said you identify publicly and socially as and culturally as an African American. Um, and you That's right, straight, that you straight up, brother. When the cops stop me, they know exactly who they stopping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, you mentioned a lot of um, indigenous nations that you know course through your through your veins, and and you mentioned how how all of this has influenced both your art and your work for social justice, and yes. um, yeah, and and you uh, say that uh, from your family historian and genealogist uh, that you. Um, uh, are you saying that you have asked that Marie uh, Laveau, the renowned uh, queen of the Wudun religion in New Orleans, uh, and part of the right, Underground uh, Railroad, is is your ancestor? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, um, she's a relative as an ancestor. Her um, her father, Charles Laveau, is uh, is actually uh, my ancestor because Charles Laveau was the uh, the grandfather of my great grandmother. Anna Georgia Brown, so uh, mm. so you know he um, he did a lot of things in in New Orleans. Uh, he was a um, he was a, a mulatto French Creole, so he was uh, he was a wealthy man, light skinned dude, you know, and uh, white mm-hmm. dude but black during those times, mm-hmm. and French. So that meant that he had money and he had social station and class. But also it it also means that uh, if he passed on the spiritual practices of his mother um, that who probably was uh, involved in some of the stuff around the, the Haitian Red Revolution. You know, this was all connected here. That, um, you know, they brought those practices to New Orleans, and then those practices eventually went other places because Charles Laveau was quite prolific as a father, so Marie Laveau and other people were, you know, some of his children. But he had some children in uh, New Orleans and then others in Kentucky. And the ones that he had in Kentucky were one of those was my uh, my my uh, great-grandmother, Anna Georgia Brown, who 
if people uh, look at Marie Laveau and they were to see a picture of me with my uh, my great grandmother, they say, "Wow, <laughs> you know, all she'd have to do is dress like that and you know put those kind of period clothes, and she could be her." But at any rate, uh, that's that's part of the ancestry. But I'm I'm proud of all parts of my ancestry uh, as a person of African descent, uh, as well as a person of Native American descent. Uh, when I was down in um, in the Caribbean area, uh, the uh, people of Trinidad, they said, you are red, nigga. I said, no, I'm just me. But, you know, I just happen to be red because uh, uh, my people are the Wyandotte people, uh, Woodlands uh, people in northern Ohio. Uh, they're the Lummi people who are a, uh, a Woodlands people uh, on the uh, northeast coast of the Pacific uh, coast up in uh, Canada. And, and they are people of the um, wood carving traditions that carve um, totem poles and other things. Their whole uh, culture is around uh, the carving of wood. And, and as I said, the Wyandotte people, they're woodlands people, and the Cherokee, which many black people are, uh, more than know that they are really, um, uh, that is there. So as a wood carver and all these other, all this stuff comes together in my wood carving, you know, because I feel like mm -hmm. somehow in, in my time of the distillation of those ancestral voices come together in the way that I'm able to uh, um, speak uh, before the United Nations um, on, on behalf of the Hurricane Katrina uh, people. Uh, I, I was in South Africa when um, they um, they were having the funeral services for um, Walter Sisulu, the uh, compatriot of uh, Nelson Mandela, who created the ANC and led the liberation struggle there. I just happened to be in Soweto and Cliptown, South Africa, during that time. And Walter Walter Sisulu died, and I was supposed to be speaking anyway. But now every public event was devoted to his funeral. So all of a sudden, I was the representative of the African American community from the United States of America who had come especially to Cliptown at Soweto to give my condolences <laughs> and my uh, appreciation about the work of Walter Suzulu. So, you know, it's like uh, Eddie Murphy said in the um, in the movie uh, uh, Coming Home or uh, Trading Places or whatever, this kind of stuff happens to be all the time. I mean, I could, I could be doing that and then standing in a food line, you know, waiting with a bunch of Chinese people for food, you know, the next day. So I, I have that. <laughs> I have uh, I have a topsy-turvy life as a prophet of God, as a servant of God, because where he where he calls, I got to go. And, you know, I've seen the whole world, but not as a tourist. I've seen it from the perspective of the suffering of the people that invited me to be there. So, so one time I was on uh, the radio at KPFA in 1987 for Black History Month, and I just happened to be talking about apartheid in South Africa because that was a big issue. But at the same time, uh, Japan was changing a re alien registration law, which was alienating literally people who had been born there. So you could not be a Japanese person there by birth as you can in the United States. Uh, uh, so um, people who were Korean had been there for years and years. Uh, they couldn't be Japanese and thus were disfranchised. So they created a passport book system, kind of like the South African thing. I mentioned that, and three months later, I was in Japan talking to people from their government about it. So, I mean, you know, I, uh, it's been an interesting life just talking about the struggles of people, and those people hear that and say, hey, that guy should come talk for us. 
And so, um, you know, people know that I'm of Native American ancestry. That's my background. I'm not ashamed of that. I've done a lot of stuff with the American Indian movement. Uh, I've got a patch on my on my buckskin that has the bullet holes through it um, that was given to me by uh, Dennis Banks when we were doing the, the Long March on the commemoration of the Trail of Tears outside of Georgia. So, you know, I'm a historical artifact walking, but I ain't dead yet, and I ain't gone yet. And, you know, and since this idiot shot through my uh, window ne- next week, I'm not going to go quietly into the night, you know. So when I do my retirement party, uh, my art is not only going to be speaking, and, of course, my well-wishers will be speaking, but, um, you know, something that people don't know about me in addition to being a- an artist is is that I actually I have a, a deep uh, performance uh, stage performance background. I've performed on stage uh, in Greenwich Village with Archie Shep at the uh, Sweet Basil's mm-hmm. nightclub. I did a lot of really? stuff. And, and, and yeah, yeah. And the way that he, the way that he found out about me is that Evelyn Blakey, the daughter of uh, Art Blakey, heard me uh, doing poetry in uh, in Harlem at at some community venue, and some of the poetry that I was doing was Archie Shep's poetry. And so she wanted to know if I knew him because she, she <laughs> that's our Blakey's daughter, so she knew all people like that. So I said, no, no, <laughs> but I know his poetry because I uh, I used to do that poetry, his poetry at Kwanzaa's at the University of Cincinnati, you, you know, when we would have our Kwanzaa observances there. So uh, since I was the organizer of Kwanzaa, and sometimes people wouldn't show up or whatever, so you've got to have something in your repertoire in, ca- in case your main speaker doesn't show up or singer or whatever so I've done everything but tap dance <laughs> you know when somebody didn't show up so if I had to sing I'd sing or do poetry that people were expecting something so uh, so then I do poetry and I did Archie Shep's poetry enough to be able to memorize it and so I would do it when I'm speaking Waveland Mississippi or um, or Harlem and so at that point mm-hmm. Evelyn Blakey heard me and um, then I got um and I was back in New York on a, doing an undoing racism workshop with uh, Ron Chisholm and Michael Washington, and uh, we were just kicking it. And um, and Evelyn Blakey said, "You know, Archie Shep is playing over at Sweet Basil's in Greenwich Village. Um, you should go meet him tonight. I introduce you." So she did that, and um, you know, and just before they were going to uh, go up for the set, and they were, you know, they hadn't, they just coming in, you know, from the street, and you know, and hanging up their coats. And so she introduced us, and uh, she said, Archie, uh, he he does uh, he does your poetry. And she's really, she was, I don't know if she was even five foot tall. She's really tiny. She had a great voice. Uh, <clears throat> and so um, he said, yeah, I'd like to hear hear you do that sometime. And so he's, you know, taking off his coat and, you know, trying to get ready for his set. And then she steps in between us, and, and she looks up in between both of well, now is now, and there's no time like now. He's here now. You're here now. So why don't you hear him now? <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so he says, well, so what do you do? So what do you know? And so I told him uh, which of his stuff that I, I knew and then I did. And he said, you know that the wedding? And so I, I ripped mm-hmm. off a couple of lines, and he said, yeah, he knows it. So I went up and did it. And it was amazing. I mean, on the bandstand was Horace Parlin, um, Rashid, um, Ali, um, mm. uh, Shahid Nabib, 
uh, and a lot of people out in the audience, you know, people came up to me afterward, and I, I was asked to come back a, a second night. So I actually did it two nights straight with them mm -hmm. because they, they liked what mm -hmm. I did the first night. It kind of kind of nailed it there the first night. I'm glad I did. <laughs> because I was nervous, you know, because he, he, yeah, when he went into the, what I was going to do on the poem, it wasn't nothing like what I had heard on the radio. I'm like, oh, no, I hope you don't expect me to do something else. <laughs> So that's all I do, and so that's what I did. So I stuck to what I do, and that, that helped at the time. So, yeah, I've done a lot of stuff like that. But as um, I would say to anybody that's listening that um, that is um, alive and able to do something, it ain't over till it's over, and you always have to have the capacity to learn and grow and do things and put yourself in a position where um, you, you'll, you'll stretch yourself and when you do that uh, in the service of God and, uh, and the people of God, your talents are rewarded, the people that you're serving are rewarded, and the world is a better place. Hmm. Right, yeah. So, so tell the audience um, about your, um, your art exhibit uh, that's going to be at the uh, Ella Baker Center um, for the month of February, and it's going to be um, in the – in the restaurant or cafe there, and then you're going to have a um, a retirement art party. So why don't you give um, folks the details on that, so they can make sure that they get over to the uh, to the venue, um, you know, to be able to catch you live, and maybe you might do some poetry for us. Yeah, I'm um, I'm definitely going to do some uh, that at night. Um, I'll let, uh, I'm going to put myself on the bill. I'm not going to go quietly. <laughs> <laughs> so um so 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 here's 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 what's going on. Um uh Zach and Maricela at the Ella Baker Center and Rock, um, we have been uh, working together with with Ron Glass who is a, a professor of philosophy and education, all kinds of other deep stuff down there at UC Santa Cruz and also a longtime friend. And um, Dr. Jaffer Smith Sr. is a is a inviting host. Fanya Davis is a is inviting host. Merle Lustig Glass is, is an inviting host, and uh, Awele uh, Makiba are oh, inviting hosts yeah. um, mm -hmm. to uh, to this event. These are all personal friends that I've known um, over the, over the years, and so um, these um, these people have graciously uh, conspired to um, help me with um, celebrating my, uh, my retirement and, and going away. And that will be held in the Colors Restaurant, a new restaurant that hasn't really uh, opened yet, uh, but it's, uh, this is going to be one of their inaugural big events, if not their inaugural big event at the restaurant and for the Ella Baker Center, which has newly renovated the, their entire space. So everything isn't up and running right now, but um, you know, it, it, it will be uh, then. So at any rate, the, um, the the show is going to be on Thursday, February the 13th. The uh, opening exhibit part of it will be available to the public from 5 until 630. At 6.30, we're going to have a program where, um, you know, all, all along there will be uh, the, the, the very skillful playing of a young uh, musical uh, keyboard genius that I've discovered named Rashid Moore. And he's going to be uh, providing the, the keyboard sounds. Uh, he's uh, like 19 years old, very gifted uh, musician, and um, 
you know, and I've, I've, been, I've had him uh, perform for me in different churches that I've uh, served at as a pastor, and he really uh, knows what he's doing and can play by ear as well as read the music, and and hope great things for him. He reminds me like of a Herbie Hancock or a Stevie Wonder or a Ray Charles, you know, even though when they were young, you know, and, and hitting those keyboards. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this young man is going to be there. His aunt Awele is going to be the, the MC. Um, I, uh, I I just sent her a message asking her that, so if she's hearing this over the airwaves, this is going to be a shock to her. But yes, I'm asking you, Awele, <laughs> to be my MC. And, um, then the other people will be there, and, and the show will be a, a retrospective of my work. The oldest piece in the show is from 1981 called um, This Way Atlanta, a Fertility Signpost. Uh, in your uh, last interview of me, uh, you, you made reference to that that had been um, talked about in the Christianity Today uh, article that came out back in the 1990s about my work. So I've been doing this work for a while. I, you know, I've had great opportunities and privileges because I was serving the people to be in opportunities where, you know, you just a dream opportunity. I mean, Miles Davis, I mean, come on. You know, I um, I grew up listening to this guy's music. I always wanted to go see him. And then in 1991, uh, the, uh, the the same year that, uh, that my uh, youngest son, uh, Aaron, w- was born, I was a featured artist at the New Orleans uh, Jazz and Heritage Festival at the same time that he, I was a featured visual artist at the same time he was a featured musical artist. So I was on the same bill with Miles Davis in uh, at, at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. I had an exhibit of what I would say my showstopper pieces on the inside um, up in the grandstand where the, the racetrack uh, ex- uh, viewing stuff was. And then on the uh, Congo Square uh, area, they they made a special raised platform for me where I was carving in public. I had, you know, smaller examples of my work down there. And so uh, I was carving in public. I had all the ones that I didn't have on the shirt. Uh, I built uh, good enough to get away with that. You know, I have some African clothing, uh, no shirt, and I'm out there in a straw hat, and I'm out there wailing away in the wood. People are buying my wood. They're talking. And so... My, my my working in front of the people was part of the performance venue, just as there was musicians on these various sound stages. You go around to Zydeco music, there's jazz, there's um, pop, there's uh, country music, there's, you know, rock and roll, there's all, you know, reggae, all of these different areas where if you walk far enough, you know, you go into these various musical soundscapes and then there's all the, the food there. So, and at the time, I was working on a project down there that no longer exists. It's a 13-foot project that was in the yard of uh, Buddy Murphy, who was a producer for the Jazz and Heritage Festival. And he lived across from the um, Edgar Degas uh, Museum and Residence. And uh, since people had to walk past um, Buddy's uh, property to get to the Jazz Festival, I was carving this 13-foot um carving a statue and and it was pretty much finished until the the termites had the final word and then and then uh hurricane katrina put a punctuation point on it so that thing only exists now in memory and in pictures but uh i was doing a lot of stuff down in new orleans and so as you said the the connection between uh, marie the and i and I, let me just say this i never did go 
to her grave for her for the cemetery where people have desecrated her memory and desecrate uh, the African religion of Bodun, which they mispronounces that other crap that uh, you know people would you know talk about. Because see, a lot of people don't know that Jesus' mother was accused of that. That's that's one of the reasons why they couldn't stay at, even in in, um, in Africa, is because everywhere that they were were, he's the son of God. If there was some evil stuff happening, you know, Jesus. <laughs> Very presence would root that out, and and people who were in power were always afraid of that. From the moment that he was born, and his mother was healing people with his uh, with the clothes that uh, he had worn, or or things that or water that he had been washed in, and using herbal remedies. Uh, and then uh, then the uh, the Pharisees at the time they accused Jesus' mother and Jesus as uh, commit doing witchcraft and demonology and all that stuff. This is the same stuff that they accuse our people of in terms of when they be praying uh, to, um, to, the, to the African gods to get this white man's foot off of my neck, you know, in African languages and with drum beats and with carvings. And so the reason why I'm a wood carver as an artist, I draw, I paint, I do a lot of other stuff. And see, you notice that Anywhere you go in the world, Wanda, and I know you've been a lot of places where black people live where we originate, you know that we're all, that every community, there's a thriving community of people who carve, there's families who carve, there's, it's passed on as a tradition, same way as textiles and basketry and metalwork. Where is that now in our families? Where is that in the communities in North America? It's nowhere. It's the same place where our African languages are and our memory of who we are. It's gone because we have historical amnesia, and when they stole something from you, if it's been gone long enough, you don't even miss it anymore. So what I discovered as an artist was is that our voices as wood carvers were stolen because people said, oh, well, you're carving wood. That's voodoo and witchcraft. That's ancestor worship. You're making idol gods and I mean, everybody's got a, a, a photograph of a loved one. They didn't have cameras back then. What did they do? They carved people, you know. So it was silly European, Western, backwards-thinking ways that black people have adopted. I, you know, I had people, you know, supposed to be Christian. They'll look at, oh, that's, that's African. Come on, you know, you've got thick lips, kinky hair, wide nose, and you're scared of African art. What's wrong with you? You know, that's what kind of sickness is in our people. And so then what I've learned as an artist and a Christian, as a black Christian, is that part of the ministry I have to do is to repair our sense of ourselves in terms of who we are and connected to our ancestors. Because when you reconnect that, then you can be created. You know, like I told you before, I had been to college, but I've been to the United Nations speaking. I've performed with Archie Shep. <laughs> I've been on the same bill with Miles Davis. How that nigga do that without an education? Mm -hmm. Inquiring minds want to know is because the power of the Most High God is blessing my talents, and you don't need to be going to these schools. You need to be connected to your ancestry and the prayers of your ancestors because we're all answering the prayers of some ancestor, all of us. The, the song Lift Every Voice and Sing talks about that. We were at a place that our fathers, forefathers sighed for, and many of us are blowing it because 
here they used to put our eyes out or destroy people for reading. We got access to all kinds of reading, and no nobody has cracked a book anymore. They, you know, and uh, and it's too bothersome for them to look something up or Google it. You know, because they're uh, they're brain dead for not using their brains. So I'm trying to wake people up at a excuse me, such a deep level that even after I'm gone, which, you know, you can take that however you want to take it in terms of uh, being gone, I intend to have a, a voice that has the power of my ancestors that speaks because they're speaking to me. And, you know, the, the, the sun, it continues to shine. The, 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 the waves continue to beat on the ocean. We all have to be forces of nature like that until the day that we die because that's why our hearts beat is to be a part of the creative act that God created in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Well, we only have five minutes left, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about Dr. King and if you want to say anything about um, that bullet coming through your window. Um, you want to sort of, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then yeah, and then also, yeah, and then also, and you know, we could have another conversation because I remember uh, when we had a conversation a few years ago uh, about some of the different ballot initiative, and this is another election year, and there was a debate last night, um, and uh, and you're a really good resource around around those kind of things. So, you know, definitely, even though you're moving back to. Uh, your hometown of Cincinnati, um, you know, you'll you'll still be close because we have technology. And when are you leaving, anyway? <laughs> uh, I'm um, uh, I'm leaving of my own volition, <laughs> of my, my own free will, uh, at the end of March. So I want to get oh, away from these fools before April Fool's Day. <laughs> okay, end of March. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so um, but back to Dr. King, though, uh, first giving honor to God, the beneficent and merciful one, the one God whom praise is due forever. Let us always give thanks for Dr. Martin Luther King, the prophet, the only prophet that has truly been raised up on American soil that has spoken to the soul of the whole world, that, that not only as a black man, but as a man and as a human being, God bless him and his ministry, and God bless us as we carry on his legacy. Now, you asked me about Dr. King. I went into the ministry because of that man, and, um, you know, everything I am as a speaker, uh, the resonance of my voice, the cadence that I uh, adopt when, you know, I'm preaching, I can attribute to both he and, and Malcolm X, my, my radio style, it's not Dr. King's radio style because he had a slow way of talking and a sonorous way of talking. But as you notice, I talk very, very quickly on the radio. I don't talk like this in person because I understand something I've learned from Malcolm X is that you have to squeeze in a lot of information quickly so you can't beat around the bush. Now, where Dr. King is concerned, at the, at, um, the University of Cincinnati, they used to have um, um, – off time during the Martin Luther King celebration. This was even before it was a federal holiday. And I worked over there as a campus minister in 1982 next to a racist fraternity called the Sigma Alpha Epsilons, who uh, had threw a racist party on Dr. King's birthday, a trash party 
I'm going to go into the filthy things that they uh, did at that party. At any rate, some, some of the people published the flyer that uh, is out about it. it. You know, Clifton Magazine wrote about it. Cincinnati Magazine wrote about it. People wrote books about it, the Sigma Alpha Epsilon Fraternity. Uh, and they've done something racist every year around Dr. King. So, you know, just watch the holidays here. The Ku Klux Klan and the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, uh, there are um, there are vestiges of the Civil War. Many people don't understand that the Ku Klux Klan actually is a Greek letter fraternity organization. Like we have our alphas and our Qs, they have the, the KKK, Kai Klux, Ku Klux Klan, so to tie them into the clans of the, the Scottish Rites, and, and et cetera. So my, I have a background as an anti-Klan organizer. So I um, I was in the public, and I was talking about that, and I called for their uh, ouster, and I got a, a death threat from a uh, from a cop, uh, allegedly, um, and he told me that um, he wanted me to, to to incite the black students to riot like they did in the 1960s, because the cops were going to do something different this time, and this time they're going to be out there with with protection. And they would know who to shoot and how to shoot. And while the cops were out there putting out, putting down uh, the riot, there would be these other people who would be there to to, to to watch their backs while they're doing it. And they said, "You go ahead, you stir the room, you know, you put the words in there, you stir them up, so we can do that." Now, you fast forward to what has happened since the uh, the the riots here in the 21st century. That's exactly what happens when the uh, oath keepers. Uh, follow the cops around to all of these um, police-involved murders of black people. You know, they have these Ku Klux Klan militia groups behind them. Dr. King was about that. So I've always been about anything he was about. So I used to be a part of clergy and laity concern. I came here to direct the Ecumenical Peace Institute, the Berkeley uh, Office of Clergy and Lady Concern, because Dr. King started that organization as the clergy and layman concerned against the war in Vietnam. And in my capacity as the creator of the Third World Caucus and its leader, I went all around the country um, doing things. Like, for instance, we created a, a prayer vigil that happened over four years on uh, Navajo Hopi land with their permission and with their, their blessing. Alice Walker was involved with this. Stevie Wonder sent us a telegram. Uh, the late Dr. Uh, Vincent Harding was involved. We had Buddhist monks up there. And so Alice Walker, a bunch of Belly Rooks, another bunch of us, we stood in the morning from the, from the sunrise until the evening, and we saw every part of the climate, from sun to cold to, 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 to everything in a prayer vigil all day with Navajo and Hopi elders praying for that land in our prayer vigil. One year later, Governor Evan Meekin was a former governor because he had outlawed the Dr. King holiday, which is why we had that prayer vigil in the first place. For one year to the day when we came back for the anniversary, he was the former governor. Don't tell me the prayer don't work. <laughs> so Dr. Right. King, bless him. That's, that's, that's why when I, I did the feasibility study, when I was approached by the uh, East uh, Bay uh, Regional Parks uh, District to do a feasibility study, for uh, an urban wetland um, type of concept, and I looked at um, different park sites, and uh, I chose the Arrowhead Marsh near, Marsh near the uh, Oakland Airport as being a fitting place to uh, have a park 
So it's a um, estuary uh, inland waterway uh, that is a uh, provides um, food and sustenance to many aquatic uh, birds and uh, sea life. You can go in there. It's a beautiful area to walk around. I'm proud that we have that as an area and it's named after Dr. King because Dr. King was about peace. And so my original uh, concept was a Dr. King peace tree grove, you know, uh, and so that that is there. So a lot of things that I've done over the years have been as a direct impact of uh the, the work and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, and um, you know uh, we have to claim him. We have to lift him up. We have to lift him up for, for what he, as Christians we need to lift him up as a prophet. As humanitarians, we need to lift him up as a as a great advocate for human rights. Uh, as Black people, we need to lift him up as an exemplar of the best of what our people have brought to this country. And you know, and there, you can go on and on and on to the niches and categories. You know, in terms of what people find themselves in, those who found themselves dispossessed or locked out, with nobody to speak for them. Dr. King is that person. He spoke for them. He spoke for the people who didn't have voices. And that's why I'm glad to have had the ministry that I've had. I ain't rich in that way of money, but I'm rich in the way of legacy and experience. I came here, you know, and served with a man, Dr. Jafford Smith Sr., who one of the first books when my father in the ministry gave me my, my first started preaching in 1974, and I came out of the woods for my vision quest and said, I want to do this. <clears throat> one of the first books on preaching that I was given was uh, one of the books by Dr. J. Alfred Smith Sr., who I'd never met or heard of until I saw these books on preaching, the tradition of black preachers and preaching. So I did. I had no idea that uh, in uh, in the apex of my career that I would be I would be retiring, and this great man would be inviting people to my retiring party. Who would have thunk it? What a journey that I've had. It's been rough. I came up the rough side of the mountain, but I wouldn't trade nothing for my journey. Right. Yeah. And I'm well, going to be on a show on H- And I'm going to be on a show on HBO. Uh, that covers the uh, documentary We Are the Dream, um, which are the kids of Oakland Oratorical Contest. Uh, so I, uh, oh. I would be remiss in, in pointing that. And Willie is very involved with that because she organized it up there. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a good time. Y'all come out, and uh, I'm going to do some stuff. Ain't nobody seen before because I ain't done it yet, and I really don't know what I'm going to do, but it's going to be something. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when when is the uh, the oratorio um, for the the film um, on uh, on uh, two eighteen and on um, on two eleven there's going to be a sneak peek screening at the Skyline Theater at uh, at seven o'clock. So they're going to show it at the school, you know, uh, earlier uh, at seven o'clock on the uh, on the eleventh, and then the actual airing of the show will be on February the eighteenth upcoming. Okay. And the party is okay. on the thirteenth. So um so <laughs> you know I'm I'm going out uh, not with the bang that that idiot thought and by by the way the person was shooting at Kamala Harris is fine. That's what they were oh. shooting at. They were I don't take it personal. I ain't that famous. I ain't you know, I ain't tripping like that but the, the, I almost called him something that begins with M and has F in it. But you but the person shot, the idiot shot at the sign with a dead center shot, and is a, uh, I, I'm glad he's a bad shot because he missed the sign, but he destroyed a great 
velvet tuxedo coat and an Oscar De La Renta shirt uh, and a couple of leathers, but they stopped that little silly bullet. So uh, so if uh, if God is in the plans, evil cannot prosper against us. And you go, girl, Kamala Harris. They can shoot my window out and they can talk you out, but still you rise. So you go, girl. <laughs> oh, you're too funny. Okay, well, congratulations on being able to have this wonderful uh, inaugural exhibit at the uh, Bella Baker Center Restaurant Colors. Um, okay, now there's now there's tickets. Now, now let me tell people there's tickets involved. There's thirty dollars. They're, they're they're doing a head count of eighty five. We got thirty people that have showed up. So you know, mm-hmm. I'm just saying, okay. you know, hurry up and buy them tickets because they ain't gonna be none. Uh, they only gonna have so much food, so much liquor, and the fire department lets so many people in. So I hope a thousand people come though. <laughs> Okay. All righty. So, yeah, my next guest is in the studio. So is there a way for people, like, how do they get tickets? Um, Go online uh, and uh, look up Daniel Buford's retirement party. You can go to YouTube, look up Daniel Buford's retirement party. There's a one-minute, 20-second video on YouTube. Did you put Daniel Buford retirement party or benefit then, um, then it's very well done uh, by uh, Shiva Sabadi. Um, a very beautifully done video that highlights uh, my uh, my activism and gives you contact work about the um, the restaurant and so on. Okay, alrighty, super. Well, thanks so much um, for the wonderful conversation. Look forward to seeing you know, you your exhibition the at the at the uh, Ella Baker Center and being in the audience for your. Ah, for your party um, on the 13th. All right. It's going to be a party over there. If ain't nobody else going to be happy, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure it's going to be contagious. All right. You take care. Yeah. Thanks so much, and I'm so happy that you're safe. Me too. <laughs> you take right. care. God bless you. you too. God bless you too. Peace and blessings. Uh, good morning, uh, Chloe Hilliard. How are you? I'm doing great. And yourself? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you so much for, for joining us to talk about. Uh, you're going to be uh, in the Bay for Sketch Fest. Tell us about that. And you're coming with this new book, um, F Your yes, Diet absolutely. and Other Things My Thighs Tell Me. And this yes, is right. so well written. Oh, my goodness. Um you, you know, it's just like, you know, using yourself and your, your own experience, um, particularly, you know, sort of your embodied experience, to just talk talk so much about American culture and history and um, and biases and sexism and racism and economics. It's just, it's just so well done. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yes. Um, I'm going to be making my my first my first trip to the Bay. Um, I've been there before, but it's my time? first time my first time performing oh. there. Yes, yes, I'm excited mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. that. Um, and so I'm a part of the sketch fair from there this Saturday, the 18th. I have three shows. Um, they got me got me fully booked all Saturday night. So you have three opportunities <laughs> to come and see me perform. Um, you can just go to Sketchfest and and find my name, and then it has like my whole itinerary. Um, and I recently released my book. My book, my debut book, dropped last week. 
Tuesday. It's called F Your Diet, and already it's selling so well that they've ordered a second print. So I'm very, very happy about that. Yes, yes. I think it's something that people people realize that um, they all relate to it. You don't have to be a bigger person or have dealt with weight issues to relate to just how we deal with food in this country. And so when you talk about all the social political things that I mentioned in the book, you know, the Bay has a very strong history when it comes to political activism. And, you know, the Black Black Panther Party was very big advocates about having whole foods and, and healthy foods for the community. And that's something that we need more, we need more of because it, when I was doing my research, I realized that most Americans, even though we are a first world country, we live in food deserts, which means that you have to physically get in a car or travel over a mile to get to a really good supermarket. And when you realize that people just don't have access to foods and that because of that, they are forced to make poor food choices, whether it's better on their wallet always just convenient and then that starts the cycle of poor eating habits gaining weight health issues and those are the things that plague us throughout our entire lives and so it was important for me to write this book because for so long so many years I myself have dealt with body image and weight and diets and I've done every diet under the sun only to realize that it's it's all just capitalism it's all just a marketing tool to make us feel that we will never be perfect enough so that you're constantly buying into something and trying to be perfect. And so it was just a real big sigh of relief for me to write this book for myself as like a healing process to let myself know that I'm okay, that I'm a healthy human being, even though I don't have washboard abs, that I'm still a, you know, a productive citizen in this society and I have something to say and something to contribute. And I think a lot of times we don't, value people because they don't look pleasing to our own personal preferences. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I just think it's, you know, so cool that, you know, that you physically take up, you know, space. You know, sometimes people are so small that they get, you know, sort of um, overlooked. Um, but there's no way that anyone can overlook you, and you're just so beautiful, too. Uh, I was going to read your bio. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're really lovely. Um, yeah, Chloe uh, Hilliard is a larger-than-life stand-up comedian. Well, that's because she's 6'1 and rocks a killer afro. Born in Brooklyn, New York, and raised in a large Hasidic Jewish neighborhood, Chloe has spun her unique experiences into side-splitting laughs. Once you know how to tell a story, you're set for life. As a journalist-turned-comedian, Chloe Hilliard is entertaining the masses with her wit and ability to find the humor in everything. For over 10 years, Chloe was a culture and entertainment journalist writing for The Village Voice, Essence, Vibe, King, and The Source. For her expertise on hip-hop culture, she's appeared on CNN, Headline, News, ABC News, Our World with Black Enterprise and C-SPAN. Her work has been featured in Best African American Essays, 2009. Uh, She made her national TV debut on NBC's smash hit, Last Comic Standing, and has since appeared on AXS-TV, Comedy Central, True TV, MTV, and most recently, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And, uh, yeah, so so tell us um, sort of how you moved from... uh, you know, from your journalism to um, to performance art 
and yeah, and so, then yeah. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I was a journalist for over ten years. I was a a staff writer, reporter, and editor in different publications. I worked at the Source Magazine, Vibe Magazine. I was a staff writer for the Village Voice, the illustrious Village Voice. And um, mm-hmm. and I got to a point where I just really wanted to get into being in front of the camera. I had done everything in journalism outside of being a broadcast journalist. And so I took a stand-up comedy class, and I did that with the, the only purpose of getting comfortable in front of people being quick on my feet and being funny because I wanted to like interview folks on camera. And a part of that process was having a graduation show. And at the show, my friends came and everybody was so excited for me. And, you know, I did well and they asked, you know, well enough for your first time, but I'm not trying to make it seem like it was like Madison Square Garden. Um, But I did well. And at the end of it, they asked me when was my next show. And so it kind of, you know, I just kind of got bit by the bug, and it's been 10 years since that happened, and it's definitely changed my life. It's allowed me to see the country. It's allowed me to interact with people and, and witness things that I never thought I would witness, and it just, I feel it's made me just a more well-rounded person. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and, you know, when you live in a big city, you tend to think that that's all the world has to offer, meaning, like, you know, there's no need to go anywhere else, but as I've traveled, I've learned a lot about myself, a lot about America, and it's just given me a lot of perspective that I can now bring to the stage and help, you know, just make people see things a little differently. So at my heart of hearts, I'm still a journalist, and that's why I love the fact that I was able to write this book because I was able to include a lot of facts and figures, but mm-hmm. I also realized that I enjoy comedy, and I would love to continue to just mix the two, so I like to do that on stage. I like to bring facts with humor and leave people with something that they can digest and, and look up or understand later. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to let our audience know that um, on the, the 18th, uh, January 18th, this Saturday, um, the, the three sets are a 9 o'clock live from the Alamo, and then um, that's that's where all they're all happening. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and then, and then, um, yeah, the first the first set there are a lot of you all, and then at ten um, there's just two. Adam uh, Conover does an hour stand an hour of stand up, and then um, with you I presume, and yeah. and then at ten fifteen there's a there's the Amazonians, um, and that should be interesting. So so you are a constant in all of these different sets, if I'm reading it yeah. correctly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. So I'm, I'm going to yeah. be jumping around. I'll, I'll be on the first show at 9, and then I'm mm-hmm. going to run over to the Adam Conover show. I mean, I don't – logistically, I haven't looked at the map yet, but I hope they're all close for, like, you know, Uber or Lyft distance. And then mm-hmm. I'll close out my night at the Amazonian. And the great thing about the Amazonian show, it is an all – it's an all-women's lineup. So whenever people mm-hmm. talk about lack of diversity or lack of women in comedy, just letting you know that the Amazonians is a, a – through and through women's stand-up lineup, and every single woman on that show is absolutely hilarious. So you can't say women aren't funny. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about about your book. Um, and uh, yeah, I I really um, you know I enjoyed the prologue, di- diabetes for breakfast, and <laughs> yes. you just talk about yeah how you know how how one's uh, 
size or what one eats. I mean, children don't have a choice. I mean, we eat what our parents give us. And um and 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 just sort of, you know, just sort of like looking at just sort of the history of the breakfast cereal and the breakfast in general and processed food and it's like it's just so I mean your your research is 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 wonderful. However, the way you weave it into um uh, the discourse it just it doesn't it's not stuffy, you know, if people think mm-hmm. that about scholarly work, but it is ter- certainly scholarly. And you've done your research. I mean, like Kellogg, like who would have known? Seven Day Adventist, like really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing in my research is that, I mean, I definitely had an amazing researcher assist me. It was it was so important mm-hmm. to me to have someone who just made sure that I was actually stating the correct facts. The worst thing in the mm-hmm. world is to release release the work and people, you know, shoot it down and say, like, that's not accurate, that's not accurate. So the journalist in me was like, I need to be fact-checked. And Mm -hmm. um, shout-out to Monica Wilder, my researcher. And what I found is that a lot of the things that we hold dear to our heart is, like, food traditions come out Mm -hmm. of necessity or or junk science. And so when we think about cereals and how every kid eats cereals, it's because John Kellogg wanted to prevent people from masturbating, and he thought that a bland cereal like cornflakes, uh, a food devoid of all spice or seasoning would calm the heated sexual palate of people and they would no longer masturbate. And so then you turn Mm -hmm. around and you realize that's what kids eat every morning before they go to school. Um, Same thing with Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola was originally a medicine and it had like cocaine in it. And so mm-hmm. when right. when when they when they decided to when the when Coca Cola decided to take the cocaine out, the U.S. government actually seized all of their um, all of their quantities because it, for false advertisement because they did no longer have cocaine in it. And so you just think about like the things that we've gone through in this country when it comes to food. For example, like tofu. The reason why tofu became an American staple in this country and farmers started farming the soybean is because of during the World War II, the Japanese internment camps, the, the prisoners there, they started farming their own soybeans to subsidize the poor food that they were receiving from the government. And that's how they, they were able to stay, stay alive and be fed because they started harvesting soybeans. And then farmers saw that it was a, a good crop and it was easy on the soil, and so they started harvesting soybeans, and that's why we have soy in everything. So it's things like that mm-hmm. when you learn and you just do a little bit more digging, you realize, oh, okay, the things that I thought were, you know, good about our food industry was actually out of, like, a weird thing that happened in history that led to what it is today. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And and when you talk about, you know, um, President uh, Ronald Reagan's nationwide fitness exam, yeah, I, I had never heard about that. Um, cause that was that was really interesting. Um, you know, when you talked about that, and uh, you know, juxtaposed to uh, growing up in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood, and and what that meant with regards to the kind of clothes that you wore to school. You know, sort of what was available. You know, commercially in your neighborhood, insofar as fashion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. And my mother liked to dress me with some local wares, <laughs> which was hard when I went to my all-black elementary school because they were like, why are you wearing that? And so I was already a <laughs> misfit and outcast. 
and you know combine combine what I was wearing with which was not trendy with my height and my size I was it was just a recipe for um for ridicule and that's exactly what happened and all little things just shaped and molded me and made me realize that my experience even though it felt very isolated and unique to me. As I talk to people, especially as folks start reading the book and writing me, they a lot of people eat from all walks of life, from all races, identify with the loneliness and the ridicule and the bullying and the weight issues that I dealt with. So that is kind of, you know, helping me in this whole process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long did it take you to write the book? It took me about... Um, it took me about if I like sat down, did not procrastinate. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it took me about like six, like six months, like six months to write the book. <laughs> oh, oh, really fast? Six months? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and is it I mean, your I, first book? I, I, know, longer, I know you've been. Mm-hmm. I was saying like I had longer to do it, but I procrastinated. I'm just being honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was. It was down. Yeah. To, it was down to the wire. Uh, yeah, this is my mm-hmm. first book. This is my first book, and it was the first time in a while that I wrote long form. I used to write really long form articles when I was the writer at the Village Voice, like you know, a couple mm-hmm. thousand words. And mm-hmm. since doing comedy, jokes are very short, and so it was. It took a lot. That's why I procrastinated. It took a lot for me to just reactivate that part of my brain where you have to sit and really focus and write and you know turn the TV off and put on a nice little tune and just zone out and so it was very it was very cathartic to allow myself to just spill out on the keyboard or on the page if you will mm-hmm. right right yeah and and you write about your beautiful mother and uh why don't you talk about you know sort of um you know your home life and uh and um and sort of your yeah um do you have any siblings and just sort of, um, yeah, how that impacts, you know, yeah. um, the work. Yes, I um, I have a younger brother. He and I are 15 years apart and mm. same parents. And that was definitely, years, yes, he's 15 years younger. Yeah, I'm 39 <laughs> and he is I'm 39, he's 24. And okay. it was interesting because I, I identify as an only child because, I was an only child for 15 years, and then he comes along, and it kind of changes my my world. But I still believe I have a perspective of that as of of an only child. And um, Mm -hmm. he's great. I love him. I adore him. I I use him in some of my stand-up material because he's a millennial, (laughs) and I am not. And so, and he also we lived together when he graduated college. He moved in with me, and um, I'm glad that I was able to allow that space for him as an older sibling. It's really hard you know, as we see millennials have really a lot of things stacked against them when it comes to financial independence in this country. So I was very glad that I was able to allow a space where he could like live with me and thrive and and work on his career. Um, And it's just every day is a challenge because we just, he makes me feel like I'm a dinosaur. He makes me feel like I'm out of place. I know, I know, I know. I mean, just the other day he was telling me, uh, and I have a joke about it. How how I said I said gay. I called someone gay, and he said that they don't say gay anymore; they say queer. And that was just like my mind was blown because <laughs> I was like, when I was when I was a kid or growing up, not even like uh, six years ago, if you call somebody queer, it was a derogatory term. 
And so just to see the world through his eyes and his experiences and just how he and his friends navigate things is, is very is very inspiring and also just eye opening. Hmm. <laughs> and and tell us about your pretty mother. Yes, my mother. She's a dream. Um, my mom, you know, my mom. As, as people read this book, and especially when I talk about my experiences with the food and my mom, and yes, she put me on diets and sent me to school with Twin Fast. I realized that it was from a loving place. It was never, my, and 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 I have to really stress, my mother never ridiculed me. She never mocked me. She never made me feel ashamed of my size or my weight. Um, she always encouraged me to be the best person I could be. She always really stressed education. I was always in accelerated or gifted programs growing up, and she was my biggest advocate. And when people would judge me for my size, meaning just my not even my weight but also my height, when adults would talk to me thinking that I was older or, you know, when people would try to, like, get over on me, she always stepped up to the plate and she protected me and she shielded me and she allowed me to be a child regardless of my physical form. And I think that's very important. And so I don't look back and think, oh, she could have did this and she should have did that. She was doing what she thought could help at the time with a child who was overweight. And thankfully we have so much more education and studies and science that allows us to understand the way to really approach these things. And I, and I wish that more people and more parents would take that extra step instead of mocking and ridicule because the world is hard as it is, even if you are, you know, considered an attractive person or under, you know, or, or slim, there's always something, especially with internet trolls and comments, there's always somebody or something willing to tear down your character or make fun of your physical appearance. And so I think at home, it's important that parents support their children and educate them when it comes to nutrition and food and body and exercise. And so my mom is amazing, and, you know, we both have the same trainer now. She started going to my trainer a couple of years ago, so every, you know, every couple of days I see her at our trainer working out, so she's doing really great. Mm, nice, nice, yeah. So I was wondering um, if you'd like to maybe share something from the book um, with our audience. Yes, absolutely. Let me let me get my hands on okay. the topic. I mean, the titles of your chapters are so provocative. Let them be ketchup. <laughs> Starving kids yes. in Africa. What would Janet Jackson do? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm gonna. I think I think one of the funniest ones that I'm gonna share is that my. Um, I think we all had this experience in the '80s when your grandparents or your mom was telling you, like, you need to eat because you're starving kids in Africa. So I'm going to read just a little part, <laughs> um, just a little paragraph. This is in uh, the chapter, chapter two, called Starving Kids in Africa. Um, I was in preschool and my grandmother, I was in preschool and my grandmother placed the lives of millions of people on the tip of my fork. I felt like Horton hearing mm-hmm. a who. Dr. Seuss' well-intentioned elephant who took it upon himself to save a world living on the speck of dust. Talk about pressure. There was no further explanation. She wasn't about to break down the social and political conflict that was killing hundreds of thousands, possibly millions. Africa? Starving kids? I'm a kid. I don't want to starve. Wait, what's starving? Where's Africa? I haven't started school yet, so I haven't learned about Black History Month and the ships and shackles. The Lion King doesn't come out for a while, so what is this Africa you speak of, Grandma? 
grandma, you got brand new Tupperware. If the kids are starving, can't we just send them these chicken gizzards and cow peas over to them? All my tiny brain could gather was that if I ate all my food, I was somehow helping people in a place I never knew existed. So that's part of F your diet and other things my diet's tell me. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, well, definitely uh, maybe we might have to have you on again when I have completed the book so we can talk in more yes. detail about some of these wonderful, wonderful chapters. But it's a great read so far. I'm so enjoying it. And um, definitely hope I can get over to see you uh, in your first, uh, I guess, appearance here in the Bay um, yes. you know, um, on stage. Like, wow, new book, you know, coming here, you know, with your book as well as, you know, on stage uh, in three different um, ensemble performances, you know, on Saturday. Yes. That's going to be really awesome. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations on all fronts, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for this wonderful book. Yeah, and all the beautiful yeah, illustrations on the back. <laughs> really, really nice folks. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank <laughs> Love you the so much. I appreciate here it. And the popcorn bra. That's really, really yes. provocative. <laughs> <laughs> it's an eye catcher for sure. Definitely, definitely. And um, I know we're over a little bit. Uh, so Zach, hang in there. But I was wondering, you know, since today is uh, uh, will be the 91st birthday of Dr. King, uh, wondering if you have any thoughts about about his life, um, sort of um, in keeping with, you know, um, in your with your trajectory, you know, as yes. as a writer and um, as an artist and as a, a young person, because you're you're 39, and I think he. He was assassinated when he was 39, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's very important that we, um, especially as a as a community, we continue to uphold and revere our icons. A lot of times we let things slide because time has passed, and the message that he speaks is so relevant today. And a lot of times young people don't know outside of the I Have a Dream speech and I think he speaks a lot to what is happening in the world as a whole, where the people, the masses are standing up and challenging the political powers that are, that are taking away our freedoms. And so it's very important to, uh, to vote or to do voter registration. It's very important to just have the dialogue about policy and not who you like as the best candidate because they make you feel good. Like we really need to break it down and, and really have very honest conversations about what we want as individuals, as a community, as a country. And I, I hope that we can continue to do the work that he so fearlessly gave his life for. And so I, I salute him and all those who are continuing to fight the fight for individual freedom and, and civil rights and just respect and ownership in this country. Right. Oh, thank you, Chloe. Um, that was beautiful. And I definitely sort of put you with those folks that are, you know, continuing, um, you know, to keep those those issues, um, you know, in front of us and, and what could be more important than, than our, you know, um, than, than our image, you know, body images as, as black women, as African-American women, and about health and about inclusion, right, and belonging. Yeah. And so, you know, with your work and with yourself, like, being out there, like, having a physical presence in in these spaces where, you know, there aren't a whole lot of black women doing this, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We don't really, we so really don't have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. So this is just part one. We're going to have another one. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. I'm with All right. It. Well, safe Thank travel. Thank you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank congratulations you. on your book and congratulations on your upcoming show this weekend. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Peace and blessings. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, good morning, Zach. How are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Wanda? Oh, I'm good. My goodness, your book. Oh, my goodness. We keep us safe, uh, building secure, just, and inclusive communities. It is like, whoa, it is so awesome. Oh, right like, on. I really appreciate it. It's four years in yeah. the making and probably more four than years. that if, if you count all the work we've been up to. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's and it's not even super long, but it's, it's a book that you want to read every every single word in there because it's just so thoughtfully assembled, and I just love, I mean, Van Jones is forward. It's like, oh, I mean, it's just, oh, it's just wow. Right on, right on, yeah. <laughs> I was really honored to have his forward. You know, I started as an intern at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, and now I'm the executive director, and mm-hmm. he was one of the critical people to kind of bring me into this work, so it was a real honor to have his forward on the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that campaign. I think that you started. You know, books not uh, was books not bars. Was that yeah, something that I you helped. designed? Uh, it was not a campaign that I designed, but I helped start it as an intern. I remember mm-hmm. uh, one of our fellow interns, Bernadette Armand, designing one of the first books not bars kind of brochures and flyers. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that started as I was starting as a law school student and intern at the Ella Baker Center right at around the turn of the century, which makes me sound old or something, but that's that's when it was. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. That's really something. I mean, would you have imagined that, that you'd be running things, right? <laughs> I know, 20 years later, I feel kind of like the, I don't know if you remember those McDonald's commercials with Calvin where he goes from the, like, fry cook to, to managing the store. Um, not that I love McDonald's, but it's, you know, kind of a, a useful metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was wondering, uh, I'm going to read your bio, and then I want to ask you if you could maybe talk a little bit about uh, Ella Baker, you know, the person yeah, who, uh, whose name your center carries, Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. And, again, um, you, you're the executive director, and uh, – and the um, the center creates campaigns related to civil engagement, violence prevention, juvenile justice, and police brutality with the goal of shifting mm-hmm. economic resources away from prisons and punishment and towards economic opportunity. Um, you are also the co-founder of Restore Oakland, and you're going to tell us about that too, and Justice Absolutely. for Families, both of which focus on the power of community action. And you graduated from Harvard and took your law degree from New York University. And you connect with Zach at Zach W. Norris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. On Twitter, I'm Zach W. Norris. Um, you can find the book at ZachNorris.com. And um, you can learn more about us at EllaBakerCenter.org. And Ella Baker was a brilliant black woman. 
she uh, really led from a different way. She wasn't the kind of outspoken, uh, always out in front. She really uh, believed in the power of everyday people to make change. And so she empowered students and sharecroppers alike to fight for justice, um, to fight within the black freedom and the freedom struggles of the long decade of the 60s. She helped organize sit-ins. She helped uh, provide mentorship to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So we try to lead in her legacy, and our motto is she led, so can you, because we really uh, understand leadership to be something that we can all embody. Mm, nice, nice, yeah. And and what brings you to the work? Yeah, um, I come to this work uh, growing up in East Oakland um, and really – seeing, you know, my own privilege play out in different ways. Um, Being a light-skinned African-American male who went to Catholic school, I had a lot of privileges that some of my uh, counterparts did not. I ended up going to Harvard as an undergrad, as you mentioned, and that's when I really saw just how differently young people could be treated when they made mistakes because when my classmates at Harvard got in trouble They got maybe a semester off. They got counseling. They got the support and services they needed. Um, But I saw friends and family members locked up for doing many of the same things, from getting in fights to using and and abusing drugs. And, you know, one of my other mentors is uh, Brian Stevenson, um, Mm -hmm. who I got to study with during law school, and he said that, you know, we are all more than our worst mistake or something to that effect. And Mm -hmm. that's how those young people at Harvard were treated, right? It was very clear that whatever mistake they made, that they were more than that mistake and that they would get the support they needed to get back on track. Um, And that's what makes communities actually safe. And so what led me to this work is really seeing those inequities and really wanting to do something about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so talk to us about about your book. Um, you know, we keep us safe um, because it's not just theory. Um, the um, Restore Oakland is is a seems to be a way of actually um, having making this tangible because you you talk yeah. you know in this really wonderful introduction, us versus them, and I was thinking about us the movie. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, and, and, you know, and the people that are like our shadows, you know, and we can think of them being like the people on top and the people on bottom, they're the same people, right? And it's just it's just the shadow side of, of oneself. And, you know, yeah. you're thinking about sort of Yoon and, and thinking about, you know, the dream state and how that's the real state. And you think about mm. the presentation and how um, it's just it's just perception. And and, yeah. and if there's kindness, like you know, you sort of think back to the movie. If there was kindness and and uh, not the attempt to like uh, sort of deny the existence of this other self, yeah. <laughs> then maybe yeah. things might have ended up differently. Yeah, I'm following. But it got you. to this I, point of crisis. I'm, yeah, I'm mostly following you. I haven't seen the movie because I'm so scared of scary movies, to be honest. Oh, it's but, scary! Um, oh my God, it's so scary. But you could do it once, and then okay, do it and once. Then, and then okay. it's leave with the, yeah. You could do it once. I I couldn't do it twice, but 
I'll tell you how yeah. scared I am of scary movies. I still haven't even seen Get Out, so you know I'm like oh, petrified. Get Out, but I, I think which one I is scarier? To... Oh, I don't know. Um, I can't tell you which one is scarier, Get Out or that okay. one. You, but you could okay. do each one once, but you can't do them and don't do them as a double feature. <laughs> okay, I will not do that. I will take your advice, Wanda. Um, but I follow your meaning, and I I feel like that's absolutely true. It's like there are different ways of looking at this issue of safety, right? And mm-hmm. what what happens is we get driven by a narrative of fear, and we don't, in that state of fear, identify what's really going on and what's really happening. And what's happening now is that crime rates are actually declining, but because there's such levels of insecurity, people don't have homes. Um, you know, I just dropped my daughters off at school, and their school may be closed at the end of this year. Schools are being shut down. Oh, um, wow. People are are on the streets across Oakland and across this country, and so there's, there's this rising insecurity, and people are being harmed, but our criminal court system doesn't address all of those harms that are right around us, housing insecurity, lack of good education, um, and people are self-medicating as a result. In, in, in fact, the, the, the criminal court system just addresses crime, which is really through the narrow lens of the powers that be that want us to um, stay in our place. So we see right now in Oakland the these four moms who are who are trying to keep their home in Oakland and all the state can do, all the police can do is push them out of that home to protect this private property. And so that mm-hmm. is an example for me of the way in which we've really got things backwards in terms of what actually makes us safe. I think if the if the book could be boiled down to one sentence, it would really be that when we take care of the public and we take care of all of the public, we really take care of public safety. Mhm. Right. Yeah. 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 Mhm. Yeah, and, and you know, it's just really um, you know, just in your introduction, um, which is as far as I got into the book right now, um, it's just yeah. really lays it out really, really well, just sort of the plan and um, you know, starting with um, you know, something that happens to you, you know, um, you know, when mm-hmm. when you're not home you know, that someone tries to break into your, well, someone breaks into your home and yeah. you just reflect on your children's, your daughter's room where all the glass was, yeah. where they would have been yeah. lying if you would have been there. But the whole idea is to to not lose sight of the humanity of mm-hmm. the um, of the person who committed the crime. That's right. You know, that That's this right. is a person, as opposed to dehumanizing this person or people, whomever. That's right. That's yeah. Right. And and see what we can do is take that example um, and bring it to scale, and that's what Devon Bogan has done in Richmond. In Richmond, in you know, 2005 was one of the highest crime rates in all of the country, the highest murder uh, rate per capita. It was in the top ten. And the city had declared a state of emergency. Everybody had up in arms and saying, what are we going to do? Devon Bogan came to Richmond. He said, I want to try this fellowship program. Um, And, you know, 
people were so frustrated. They're like, well, I don't know what that is, but hey, let's try it. Um, it's a mentorship program. The police had already identified what they thought to be the 30 or so people who were responsible for um, most of the murders and shootings in Richmond. Um, and Devone brought those young men into a room overlooking all of Richmond, uh, one of the nicest rooms in the city. And he said, you know, um, people are up in arms about this, pro- uh, about this problem of violence in Richmond, but no one has come to you and asked you what do you think should happen and how do we solve this problem together. He actually engaged them in an 18-month fellowship program where mm-hmm. they got daily positive contact from mentors. They got uh, a monetary stipend and they had travel opportunities to kind of expand their horizons. And the the media got wind of this and said, wait, wait, let me get this right. You're paying people to not shoot each other because they were focused on this monetary stipend. Um, Mm -hmm. But the city officials really rallied around Devon and supported him because they saw that it was working. They saw that when these young people had an opportunity to actually understand the the cause and the consequences of their actions and to expand their horizons, they were able to, you know, move in a different direction and and Mm -hmm. actually kind of quash the beef that was in between some of the the rival neighborhoods. And that resulted in something like a 70% decline um, in the homicide rate in Richmond, which wasn't just you know, a wonderful thing for um, the predominantly uh, black men who are being affected by violence. It was really a wonderful thing for all of Richmond. Um, and and that's the story that I think deserves to be told over and over again because it really puts the lie, uh, shows that it's a lie that we can punish our way out of these problems, that the real solution is actually to invest in young people, to invest in their families, and that is really the foundation of safety. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, that's a really beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, wow. And it's, it's, and it's a tangible example, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of the stories that I focus on in the book. Um, the book is really mm-hmm. aimed at telling people's stories. And there's some stories that are positive like that one, and there's some stories that are harder to read, but I actually – go through and reimagine in the latter half of the book, I reimagine three different stories and how they might be different if we adopted a cult- what I call a culture of care as opposed to this mm-hmm. framework of fear. The framework of fear says um, you made a mistake, you're the problem, we're going to separate you from the community, we're going to isolate you, we're going to punish you. A culture of care says, no, we can actually hold you accountable while still holding you in community. We know that in order to actually answer for what you have done, you actually need to be in dialogue with the people that you have harmed. And that's what restorative justice is all about. It's really about holding people accountable while still holding them in community. And it really works. It works for the folks who have caused the harm because recidivism rates are the rates at which people get in trouble again are much lower, so people are less likely to harm someone else. And victims report much higher satisfaction rates with the restorative justice process because they can see the accountability that has occurred. They can feel it. 
they know that um, this person is is making amends. Um, and so that's really one of the true win-wins. You know, a lot of times people say win-win and it's actually disguising something that isn't a win um, for some of us. But this is a true win-win both for the person who's been harmed and the person they've, they've harmed. And that's the direction that we should be moving in, in terms of our public safety systems. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Well, I'm really happy that you um, you sort of talked about um, the culture of care and um, um, and the uh, the the fear the fear based model mm-hmm. because I was going to ask you about that and and I was just thinking of a few things were sort of rolling through my mind as I as I was reading this uh, I was thinking about um, not just re- uh, restorative justice but I was thinking about transformative justice and mm-hmm. uh, and I was thinking about the book you know the revolution starts at home and um, and and how how you know your your book we keep us safe is is in um is in conversation you know with with you know sort of what does safety mean and how can we keep mm-hmm. our our community safe the community itself not bringing in law enforcement because i was listening to um snap judgment um this weekend i, I like that podcast show um on KQED and um and they were um um uh, I guess they were in collaboration with a, a couple of um, of um, audio programs, and 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 the show was about um, a, a person who, as a youth, um, shot a policeman in his neck, but the policeman lived, and mm-hmm. um, and so he was convicted, and he ended up, you know, many years later in San Quentin, and I don't remember mm-hmm. the names. Um, but it was just this past Saturday, if anybody wants to look it up um, and listen themselves. And so um, he he had a lot of remorse. The person um, you know who harmed uh, this this other person, and uh, and so at the parole hearing, um, you know he was denied, and the person who he harmed was there prepared to give all these reasons why he shouldn't get parole. But then he. You know they didn't remember each other because it had been like twenty years or something, and mm-hmm. and so when um, when the person who was harmed looked at the person um, who had harmed him, you know who was a kid, and then he heard all these heard what had happened to the child, you know that his mother mm-hmm. was um, addicted to drugs, and he mm-hmm. at I don't know five years old, something really young, um, you know had to take care of his siblings, and so what he did was he cut grass. Um, to make take the mm. money and then buy food for his his siblings and then they ended ended up in the foster care system and mm. uh, and anyway and it wasn't a good good situation for him and he ended up becoming a member of a gang which was the first place that you know his circumstances were not held against him like being a foster care kid and yeah. um, and so and so the person who was the um, uh, who was shot he he understood the context. Of, That's of the right. training of the kid who was trying to kill him, and it's like, oh well, you know, like I get it because because he had been trained, you know, as a policeman, and yeah. he said that when he would walk to the door of a house or whatever, you know, for whatever reason that he was called, he would say, if you don't see my solution on my belt, then you 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 know you you call the wrong department. And mm. I'm like, wow, I never heard that mm. like that. So. So, you know, sort of rolling back to um the whole idea of restorative justice and um 
and and transformative justice, which you know sort of is a a deeper, more long term kind of way of looking yeah. at you know safety and accountability. Yeah, I was just thinking um, that you yeah, know this book is just it's, such a it's, gift. It's interesting that you. Uh, describe that story because it it for me really reminded me of the the book itself um, in the sense that what I do in the book is um, give the reader an opportunity to almost have a rewind button. So I take mm. uh, folks through a story of um, uh, James and Marlena. And, um, James um, actually killed both of his parents and Marlena his sister. Um, and I describe James's story, um, and it it ends with the tragedy of him um, killing both of his parents and ending up in prison for life. And um, but really trying to understand what led to that event and what are the different points of intervention going all the way back to school, elementary school, uh, for James that could have. Um, led him down a different trajectory. And if we adopted kind of a culture of care in our society, the way in which these tragedies, um, so many tragedies could be averted. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's important because a lot of times we can look at some of these tragic stories and just be like, Oh, you know, that's just a terrible thing that happened. But if we actually invested in the kinds of systems that, support families when they have um, are, are, are navigating poverty and insecurity um, that support folks who are um, using and abusing drugs, we, we could really transform the lives of communities and really create much safer communities for everyone, um, police officers included. And, and that, that is something that um, I think needs to be, told and, and we, we need to develop that kind of radical imagination as Dr. King I think uh, described and talked about um, mm-hmm. so I, I'm with you I think here I'm, I'm sitting and talking to you within a building called Restore Oakland um, which yes. really is about um, restorative and transformative justice because um, we have one of the nation's only dedicated spaces to restorative justice for restorative justice here in this building. We have a restaurant that will be run by formerly incarcerated folks and others who have been locked out of opportunity. It will be run by the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. The restorative justice space is being used by restorative justice for Oakland youth and community works. Um, And it's also a space for organizing and transformation. The Ella Baker Center and Kazahusta Just Cause are in this building Mm -hmm. because we want to make sure to hold uh, elected officials accountable to this vision of a transformed city. And we know that we can't do that without good organizing and, and really holding people's feet to the fire. Um, and and we also can't do it if people can't see the vision uh, of what safety looks like beyond um, just a focus on policing and prisons, right? Because so much mm-hmm. of the mythology of programs like Law and Order and Cops and all of these television shows and the physical architecture of prisons themselves really kind of almost dominate the public imagination and crowd out other real solutions. And so Restore Oakland 
is right here in East Oakland at 1419 34th Avenue in the Fruitvale. It's a beautiful building and really it's a brick and mortar vision of what community safety looks like when it's really um, done in the interest of community members. Mm, wow, wow. This is really, really awesome. Um, and uh, from what I, I noticed um, from the link on, um, you know, Restore um, uh, Oakland, that uh, that it's it's still being developed presently, um, that there's a, it's a building project. I mean, the way that it looks in the um, uh, in the illustration yeah. is not how it looks presently, or well, it's close. So we're occupying okay. the building. Um, no, I shouldn't say mm-hmm. occupying. We're in the building. We co-own the building <laughs> with the the Ella Baker Center. Co-owns the building with the um, Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. Um, the only thing okay. that isn't open as yet is the restaurant hasn't had its official launch. Um, but the rest mm-hmm. of the building is open. The space for restorative okay. justice is open to the public. It's actually free. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mm-hmm. can work with Tash Nguyen at restoreoakland.org um, mm-hmm. to, to, to mm-hmm. book the restorative justice room because we don't want it to just be available to nonprofits and, uh, or, or just as a a formal diversion program away from the justice system, although that is important. We also want it to be available as an informal space. So if you're having mm-hmm. a problem with, you know, folks in your neighborhood, we can, you know, hopefully connect you with the circle keeper who can help resolve some of that conflict um, so that we're not reliant on uh, police who, you know, as, as you mentioned, sometimes are coming with this mindset of, um a particular mindset that isn't helpful. And we've seen the tragic results uh, of um, policing in black and brown communities across this country over and over again. So really in the book, I describe the ways in which we can reduce the need for police and really be um, uh, activating what I call um, first other first responders and other folks that have called them community guardians and really looking at Mm -hmm. all of the different issues from unsheltered crisis to mental health um, issues to substance abuse. There are a whole host of issues that really should be dealt with from a public health approach because public health issues deserve public health solutions. And what we've done is really criminalize a whole set of um, issues in ways that actually worsen the problems rather than solve them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking um, when you when you spoke about how um, uh, Brian Stevenson, you know, like author, uh, fellow, and, you know, now there's this movie that's getting all these awards mm-hmm. <laughs> with the title yeah. of, of his book, Good Just word, Mercy. Is, um, yeah. yeah, his book, Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and uh, Redemption. And I just think... Um, uh, you know, we keep a safe, building secure, just, and inclusive communities is is sort of like, you know, sort of in that particular tradition. And um, right and in Stevenson's book, you know, he tells all these great stories about his case. We meet these, you know, children, you know, that are in, you know, in solitary confinement or or confined with adults and being abused. And, and then we see, you know, how, um, you know, just through the work, you know, he's able to sort of change the way these systems operate. And similarly, you know, through the work of the Ella Baker Center and your work, 
you know, you're able to change these systems and shut down, you know, prisons before they get built, mm-hmm. you know, for young people, which mm-hmm. was a real wonderful um accomplishment of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Right. And and then you think about the Equal Justice Institute and, and then, you know, you all have um the um Restore Oakland, you know, uh yeah. No, right on, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. Um uh I, I had a chance to work with Brian Stevenson in Alabama as a law school student and just learned mm-hmm. so much from him. I've had really good fortune to have some amazing mentors um really appreciated michelle alexander's endorsement of the Mm. book and have had an opportunity to get to know her uh as a board member for a while on the uh, she's still an honorary board member of the ella baker center so we really appreciate her support um but yeah as as you you mentioned we have had success in actually shutting down youth prisons here in the state of california in alliance with amazing organizations like the Center for Juvenile and Criminal Justice and the Youth Justice Coalition. We fought a campaign to close uh, five of the eight youth prisons in the state of California. And some people, some listeners aren't be thinking, oh, my gosh, that means crime must have went up. But no, crime went down during that same period. It was a, a victory for human rights because young people were no longer, or, or not as many young people were being subjected to solitary confinement and and at the same time, youth crime continued to go down. So it was a victory for human rights and a victory for public safety. Uh, and so that is something that I think uh, folks can learn about also in this book. Uh, there's a whole chapter that really uh, describes our, our campaign um, to close youth prisons in the state of California and some of the, the people who were impacted um, by that campaign as well. Mm, right, yeah. So this book is, you know, it's a witness, but it's also, you know, a handbook. It's got practical applications. Yeah, and, exactly. uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. And and I really appreciate, you know, sort of your acknowledgement of the trauma, you know, that um, is persistent, you know, in our communities and um, and how, you know, the work needs to um, to work to heal and, and, and you know, create spaces where this is not something that's so common. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of my pivotal moments was, was being in a jail cell. After getting arrested, we were fighting the construction of a what would have been the largest per capita juvenile hall in the country in Alameda County. We called it the Super Jail for Youth. And just being mm-hmm. in that jail cell after civil disobedience and just seeing, you know, so many young black men uh, come through Santa Rita and just the no- the way in which that was a normal experience and it wasn't and it shouldn't be um, and mm-hmm. that is something that has really stuck with me and, and we can actually shift that um, by by um, relating to one another differently but also by changing these policies that um, have gone on for too long um, that have incarcerated you know, disproportionate numbers of, of black and brown um, people. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And your book, uh, We Keep a Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities, um, is is officially not out yet. Um, it's, uh, no, you got the gonna, sneak peek one. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, February, is it February 4th? Is that um, when it's going to hit the streets? February 4th, it hits the streets, and we're having a launch event here at Restore Oakland at 6 o'clock, so folks can come at 1419 34th Avenue, Oakland, California. Please come check us out. You can also um, get the book at ZachNorris.com. You can also get it on and. Pre-order at Powell's uh, is is one bookstore that you can pre-order to make sure it arrives um, right there on February 4th. Okay, super. All righty. Well, congratulations, and definitely um, putting that date in my book so I can come and see Restore uh, really Oakland it, facilities and, and be there to like get my get my autograph and say congratulations in person. All uh, right, on. I really appreciate <laughs> it, Wanda. We've known each other for a long time, so that's going to be an honor to be able to sign that book for you. And I hope other oh, well, folks thank will you come so out as well. Yeah. Oh, of course they will. It's going to be like. Try to get there early so you can get in the room. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, because we really appreciate, you know, your work, uh, Zach, over the years and your continued commitment, you know, to, to our community. Um, this is, you know, this is like, uh, you know, something that's, you know, this is what you've dedicated your life to. And, and we really appreciate right that. And we appreciate your family for supporting you in this this passion that you have for for um, you know justice and liberation for right the lesser and the more silenced of our community. Right on. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you take good care. All right. Take care, Wanda. I appreciate you. Bye-bye. Okay. okay. Peace and blessings. I appreciate you too. Peace and blessings. Ah, good morning, uh, S. Pearl Sharp and um, Mrs. Uh, Mildred Pitts Walter. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Good, good morning. Congratulations on this wonderful book. It just arrived yesterday. Something inside so strong. Life in pursuit of choice, courage, and change. Yes. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have um. Ooh, got a lot of feedback. Okay. Maybe hold on one second. Okay. Oh. Hello. Okay. Oh yeah. That's that's better. <laughs> yeah. I think it might be because maybe you you have two different phones or something. Yes. Okay. Maybe you could just be on speaker, and then you just have one well, phone. Yes. Yes. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so better. you have a um. No, yeah, that's much better. You have a reading this Sunday, right? Yes, there in San Mateo. Right, right. Why don't we, uh, S. Pearl? Can you give us those details so our audience can make sure that they are in the house? I think it's eleven o'clock in the morning. Well, it's uh, during the coffee hour. Of the mm-hmm. um, service, the service is at ten, and then okay. at eleven, um, mm-hmm. the, the coffee hour. I will be signing books there, where at okay. the Unitarian Church on Saint Inez uh, Street in San Mateo. Okay, cool, super. Will you be? Um, will there be any reading um, allowed of the book? Um, yes, there will the be service? some reading. Um, of special um, sections 
um, the <clears throat> minister there was quite interested in the reluctant writer and the chapter mm. on the reluctant writer. So I will mm. read from that and some of that, and I will probably read from The Awakening. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice, yeah, yeah. So S. Pearl, you, you came up um, from Southern California to be with your friend for this, this occasion of her book launch. No, she's still, we're still here in Southern California, and she'll be flying oh. up Friday, uh, so she'll be there all weekend. She used to live in oh. San Mateo. So that's, you know, she has oh, a whole community there that is excited about the book. And the book, by the way, mm-hmm. is Something Inside So Strong, Life in Pursuit of Choice, Courage, and Change. And it's been published by University of Mississippi Press. Oh, I thought I thought, um, I thought you were in San Mateo still, um, uh, Ms. Tiff Walter, and, and that, oh, okay, so you're in Southern California now. I see. Okay. I'm in uh, Pasadena, <laughs> California now, at an oh. assistant living place. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. All righty. So um, I was going to um, ask Pearl if you'd like to introduce um, uh, uh, Ms. Uh, Mildred, or I could read um, her bio. Um, it's up to, you know, whatever you like, because, you, you know, you're a friend, and so, you know, you could give us a more in-depth uh, introduction, because you told me some things I didn't know. Well, some things you don't know is that she's lively, sprite in 97, and takes a walk every morning. So for those <laughs> of you who are having trouble getting your health together, just come on and watch her. <laughs> 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 and uh, and I used to show up in San Mateo, and she'd open the door with a sweet potato pie just out the oven that she made. So. <laughs> Nice, nice. Wow, wow. Yeah. And yeah. uh oh, I'm sorry, she's, yeah, uh, she's she is the author okay. of 21 books for young children mm-hmm. for children and young readers. And uh this is her autobiography that's just come out. And in addition to being a writer and being one of the pioneers in developing black books for children, I mean black books for our children, she also was involved in the civil rights movement. Her husband was the head of the Los Angeles chapter of CORE. So they were very involved in training the Freedom Riders who went to Mississippi. Um, They were very involved in uh, testing the Unruh Act here in California about redlining and housing. Uh, They were active in getting Bank of America and some of the supermarkets to hire black people for the first time. So, um, And she remains an activist today. Even today, um, she will be very happy to talk to you about reconciliation. So let me give you back to her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and also, um, you know, know, some of your children's books, Justin and the Best Biscuits in the World and Mississippi (laughs) Challenge, yeah, I I know I know I know your work as as a, a children's um, writer. Um, yeah, because I I like children's literature. <laughs> and, oh. You know, and I remember reading your books to my children, and just reading oh. them to myself because I like I like, you know, young adult <laughs> children's books. Um, yes. And now I'm reading them to my grandchildren. So I want to thank you thank you for the wonderful work. Um, you know, particularly when there weren't that many. Writers, you know, that many writers published that were writing, you know, for, right. you know, our children, you know, so we really right. appreciate that. Yeah. And um, and I and I'm from Louisiana, I'm from New Orleans. 
And um, oh. and so yeah, so whenever it's like even though, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, um <laughs> um when when I was in New Orleans, uh it was segregated still. And oh, so yeah. um that was one of the reasons why we left. And um yes, yeah, so I appreciate, you know, your your work uh as an activist, um, you know, because when I look at you know the protests and people were literally putting their bodies on the line. I just like wow. I'm like, um, I I just wonder if I could have done something like that. You know because well, you could just, have. Mm. Um, <laughs> it, it takes um, being with others and becoming one with others. Mm. You can do almost anything, and that mm. is what we did. We we put our lives online. We would sing together and uh, get ourselves ready for facing um, the evil that was done uh, and letting the evildoer know that we were one, including the evildoer. And if they would just listen they would know that we were there to make this a better world. And that Mm -hmm. is how we were able to go to jail and to face dogs and water hoses. We knew that what we were doing was to make it a better world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, And in 2020, you know, so as you look at this world, as it is presently, and you think about uh, sort of um, what the vision was, um, particularly, you know, today is uh, Dr. would have been Dr. King's 91st birthday. Yeah. And um, so, so you're you're his peer. I mean, you know, at at 97, yes, you, know, you all were like <laughs> same age almost. Right. Um, and he was younger, a little younger than yeah, I. A little younger. And, mm-hmm. But not that much. But we, mm-hmm. I marched with him uh, in L.A. once, and mm-hmm. he and the um, legislator from uh, New York, Clayton, uh, Adam, Clayton. Adam, Adam Clayton Powell, the, mm-hmm. the two of them were together, and we went against a drugstore there that wouldn't let us sit at the counters. To have mm-hmm. ice cream, yes, and of oh. course, my <clears throat> my husband and I did a lot to change the housing um, patterns in Los Angeles. Los Angeles mm-hmm. was segregated almost as much as Chicago, or maybe just as much. <clears throat> And um, we marched and moved against the builder who had federal money and wouldn't sell to us. I went to jail in Torrance, California, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, make sure that we were given that right. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So you've done some work in uh, in housing uh Equity. Yes. yes, excellent. Yeah, yes. I presume that you know now. You know, looking at how many people are under and unhoused. Um, just like yesterday, um, uh, yeah. Uh, the 
you know, these mothers who had occupied a vacant house were taken away um, in in handcuffs um, in Oakland. Yeah, I was wondering sort of how you feel, you know, seeing like so many people in tents and other inadequate um, shelter. And it's so cold. I mean, I don't know what it's like in Southern California, but in Northern California, it's a bit chilly um, when the sun goes down. Yeah, it gets chilly here, uh, Mm -hmm. especially at night and near the ocean, Santa Monica, Mm -hmm. uh, Los Angeles. Um, Pasadena is not quite as cold, but it gets Mm -hmm. chilly early in the morning. Right. Wanda was yeah. almost late getting mm-hmm. to her this morning because they were clearing out a major henting um, mm-hmm. encampment, a homeless encampment, and they were stopping traffic so that they could get their big trucks in. And I looked at it. I wish I'd had my camera because there were like mm-hmm. five police cars. There were three mm-hmm. huge um, city trash trucks. There was some other kind mm-hmm. of orange city-owned thing, all of, that, all of that equipment, all of those people. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. what is the money that's being spent to clean this out? had been spent to do something else on the housing situation. Right, exactly, exactly, yeah, because yesterday they even had tanks in, you know, West Oakland in, in a, you know, um, a uh, residential community. I mean, they came at 5 a.m. with big guns and explosives, and and it was really a good thing that they the women knew that, the mothers knew that they were going to come because the children weren't there. Because I, oh, I can't imagine, oh, you know, so that the trauma those poor children would have suffered um, had they been present, you know, when 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 all of these law enforcement, you know, um, came to to this uh, house, and mm-hmm. and the women, you know, were not armed. You know, they always said that it was nonviolent, you know, um, uh, civil disobedience. Yet. Um, you know, I can't imagine how much money, like you just mentioned, you know, that happened today in Southern California, how much money goes into this, you know, to this armament, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of response to, um, you know, housing or shelter and all these other human rights that um, that are not acknowledged, you know, in our in our nation. And one of the things I wonder, not only how much money they're spending, but... Um, <clears throat> What happens to the women, you know, later? Do they now have a, a record because they've been arrested, you know, just trying to mm-hmm. defend their home? That That's, you know, these, these are the issues. One of the things I've learned from working with uh, Mrs. Walter and working on the book is that mm-hmm. these things just keep repeating. We keep repeating. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's writing about the work mm-hmm. she did back in the 50s and the 60s and with housing, and now we're in a whole other century, and, you know, it's still happening. I'm going to give you back to her. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes. It is it yes. is happening. So, it mm-hmm. it is happening because the nation is suffering from the traumatic stress syndrome from slavery. Mm-hmm. We have never discussed slavery and ended this kind of inhumane treatment each most of so many of the people feeling that they are individuals and individuals cannot act humane because they mm-hmm. feel they can take care of themselves. But one, the humans need to care and be cared for. 
And until we recognize that and discuss the racism that has been in this nation since 1649, the kind of slavery that had never existed before existed here, until we can discuss that and come to a period of reconciliation, nothing will change, I feel, for the better in terms of racism and the inhumane treatment out of fear, guilt, and fear that is still in this nation. Congress Mm. apologized uh, back in uh, 2014, and um, they did nothing after the apology, yet the Christian uh, Christians feel that they must do what Jesus said, don't bring your offering to the church when you know that you have wronged your brother. You go to your brother and ask forgiveness. And then you come back and pay your service to God. They didn't do that. They apologized, which admitted that they had wronged who? Africans and their descendants here. So I don't know, uh, Wanda, but I feel very strongly that until that happens, the nation will not be healed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people thought um, last year, you know, for the um, 400 years of African American history and the commission that was um, uh, was given, you know, sort of the the charge to um, uh, to promote, you know, programs in community around around the contributions of people of African descent to this nation, and and they are continuing, you know, this year. Um, there was um, there was a big conversation about reparations um, that um, uh, that you well, know hadn't been had be before. No reparations mm-hmm. until they consider uh, all the laws in the Constitution created because of slavery. Um, they pay reparations to property. Of course, we were property, and they feel, I'm sure, that with the Constitution still claiming us as three-fifths of a person, they can't give us reparations. We are property, and property, Mm -hmm. uh, you can only pay reparations for for property. And that law was created because we were considered property, and if somebody took us, they had to repay. So mm-hmm. I don't know why our legislators, I mean African-American legislators, won't discuss this and see if we can't find a way for reconciliation and repairment and uh, you know, repayment for that. We can't do it. They have tried it with the um, 
Reconstruction period. Then they tried it with the Kerner Report, and nothing happened because uh, I feel, now I may be wrong, the Constitution won't allow it. Hmm. Yeah. So do I hear you saying that the Constitution um, needs to be amended? That's so it, that, to um, get rid okay. of the idea that we are property. Mm-hmm. Right, because we're not people. Mm-hmm. We, we are not uh, considered capable of being repaid. We, uh, we don't own anything. We mm-hmm. were owned. So mm-hmm. now I may be interpreting this wrong, but I don't think so. And until mm-hmm. that is <clears throat> discussed and and there is reconciliation <clears throat> and the realization that all of those laws